Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 27 of Through the Years, the podcast where we review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame. I'm joined, as always, by Matt Feuerstein. And Matt, we, we got to just cut straight to it. The streak is over. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. The streak is over. Yeah, you you jumped right into it. I, I was going to like be more subtle about it. I was going to I was going to say like this. Well, the show we're about to review tonight is a very historic show, and literally no one else in the world, including the people who promoted it and were on it, know why it's historic except for <laughs> us. But now all the listeners know. For those people who uh, our last episode did crazy high numbers uh, to the point where me and Matt. Don't know. We suspect it's a glitch. It definitely is. It's, it's definitely a glitch. Like it's a. But, but just in case, we should probably kind of clarify what the streak is, because some people might not be listening to every episode. They might be joining us too. And also, yeah, liter- liter- literally, twice, literally half of our listeners are brand new, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. they don't know anything. But and, and also, when we say it's probably a glitch, it probably is. But that's not to be smirched. Doctor Keith, who did a great job as a guest on the last episode, or Pro Wrestling Only, who gave us a nice little. If you go to the Pro Wrestling Only website, prowrestlingonly.com, right now. If you go to the podcast tab, we have our own little playlist selection under podcasts, where you can an easy place now to see every one of our old episodes to download or listen to. But so that's not to be smirched them. I'm sure they helped, but we just. It was a crazy high amount, but just in case, if there are new people listening, one thing we noticed while doing this show was uh, a few episodes in, we started to realize, uh, hey, uh, seems like there's been some incident of man-on-woman violence on every one of these shows we've been watching, and we just decided, well, let's keep track of that. How long could this possibly go before the streak is broken? I mean, maybe six shows, maybe seven. No, it was, as it turns out, the first 26 Ring of Honor events had some kind of man-on-woman violence or man-on-woman aggression, usually just outright violence. And these, and, event, and these events spanned literally a year and a half. Yeah. More than a year and a half. And, and you know, again, this was not something when we started the show, we were like, oh, this will be something to look out for. It was just something that probably, I don't know, people who really listen to the archives, you might be able to find like, Somewhere in the probably the first five episodes, there was probably a moment where we realized, like, whoa, we should keep track of this because this is kind of weird. And, I mean, I've talked about this on Twitter, but the fact that they did that they ended the streak on a show called Tradition Continues is like this. This is some Berenstein, Bernstein, Bear stuff where Gabe must be altering history with a time machine just to screw with us because. How can you end the streak on a show called Tradition Continues? Also, that name really means nothing. <laughs> like, what tradition is continuing? Just the wrestling in Maryland? It's like, yeah, just the- having, having wrestling in the state of Maryland is the tradition that's continuing. <laughs> so really, that title clearly was chosen just as a troll on us all these years later. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, it's just... I mean, the only way it could be more false advertising if it was just called... Man on woman violence forever. It was the title of the show. I mean, that's the <laughs> only reason it could be more. I mean, that was the I name. Mean, of, that was the name of that um, that uh, show in uh, in Boston in uh, in August. R O H man on woman violence forever. <laughs> it's also the new name of this United States Supreme Court. Oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, we're going there. Boom. That's no, that's well deserved. We're, um, we're going there. Also well deserved is the plug for ProWrestlingOnly.com. We've got a new plug. Matt, I don't have to do thinking anymore. I just got to read this. So I'm just going to tell you to check out ProWrestlingOnly.com to explore other podcasts along with match reviews, features and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, video games and matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows and movies, and more. You can also join the conversation by signing up at the Pro Wrestling Only forums. We've been online for over a decade, and with over 2,000 registered members and an archive of over 4 million threads, our message board is a vibrant community all its own. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in our match discussion archive, take a deep dive in the Microscope Forum, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present. Check out all of this and more at www.prowrestlingonly.com. I'll note, Matt, we have a thread in the like the plugs and podcast section. You know, people can certainly post there if they want to communicate with us. And I also want to make really clear, the Microscope Forum is not a place to talk about microscopes. I learned that the hard way. Yeah, no, this is pro wrestling only. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but I, I, I will say, um, just in all sincerity, um, you know, Charles is really, you know, like doing something new with the site. It's kind of a new mission statement that he has. And it's really been off to, you know, it's been off to a, a good start. He's been, he's been trying different things, experimenting, and I'm excited to be a part of it. So I'm looking forward to see where it goes. Yeah, it's really cool. They've already got some book reviews up. They've got, you know, just they're trying to review like a lot of different things related to wrestling. And it's it's always good to see like new sites pop up or in this case, a site that was mostly just a message board. Try to like broaden the scope. It's really cool to see. So, yeah, definitely. If you if you've even been there like months ago, check it out because it's completely different now. It's still got the same message board. If you like that, which I you know, I've been a reader of that message board for years but if you were like oh, i'm not into message boards well there's a whole you know site component now our podcasts are much more visible i'm it's just yeah it, it's really cool so i'm actually now we got to something we haven't had in the recent episodes partly for time and partly just because there hasn't been a lot of news but the news between the shows I've got a couple pieces of news, and one that's only, like, tangentially related to uh, Ring of Honor, but I just had to mention it because it's so weird. This is something I cut out from the last episode in the interest of time, but Matt, obviously, uh, Ring of Honor's big competitor at this time on the indies was MLW. There was a kind of a Court Bowers promotion, which people who are keeping track of indie wrestling now will know it's had a big resurgence. It's on TV now. It's come back. And uh, I almost I almost went to the taping the other night, but it was just couldn't make it happen on a work night. Huh, yeah. Huh. That would have been cool, but yeah, I'm sure you'll get I'm sure you will get more chances. But Yes. There was a there was a feud back against the burgeoning MLW and Ring of Honor back then. But there was also some differences in the product even though they did a lot of overlap and there's one really interesting story from a MLW show. Well, not really interesting, but I, I thought it was moderately interesting, which is the slogan for the show, um, that, that happened at an MLW show around this time. And I'll just read from The Observer. This is from an MLW show. The crowd also hated Samoa Joe because he doesn't have a good physique, and they started heckling him with cries of being fat and even told him to go to wrestling school since the match had a lot of missed spots. And I'll note this was a match against Mike Awesome. And Dave writes, somehow, seeing his opponent was Mike Awesome, you've got to figure Awesome had a lot to do with it. <laughs> 
because there are so many Samoans already in the promotion, and since Samu works and helps run things backstage, and Court Bauer learned a lot of the business from Afa, they used Samoa Joe under his real name of Joe Sanoa, and he lost to Awesome, which w- which also seems to show that the Awesome knockout on the All Japan show was an angle. I guess that was related to something then. It also means that MLW has the Ring of Honor champ doing a clean job at its TV disposal. So I just thought, like, I think re-watching the shows, we've realized like Joe was pretty great right from the get-go in Ring of Honor when he came in late 2002. It's kind of crazy to think that like in some places, he, he was still like, go home, fatty, like you don't know how to work, like in 2003. Like, yeah, that, yeah that I mean, blew my mind. yeah, like, you know, I would watch some ROH at this point, but I didn't really, you know, start paying full attention to it till maybe 2004 and didn't start watching it regularly until 2005. So probably at this point, if I had seen Samoa Joe, you know, not under that name at an indie event that I went to, I honestly might not have known who he was. So it's, it's interesting just, you know, we're, we're so we've been so enraptured in Ring of Honor, like for it's, you know, been a major promotion to us for many, many years, so it's, you know, it's hard to realize, like, it still was a pretty low visibility promotion to the wrestling fan base at large in 2003, and, you know, it must be weird for the wrestlers to go from being, like, superstars in this one promotion to just being an indie guy in other places. To literally, like, not, like, apparently, things I cut out of that review were, like, some of the hot indie names that worked there at the time, like, the crowd didn't know them at all but they popped for like guys from the tv era of a few years prior so yeah like going to what you just said joe goes from playing a place where he's like one of the top stars to a place where they don't know who he is and he's people are just like who's this fat schlub who's ruining a match with the amazing mike awesome and right now you know you think like but you know joe is so talented and we you know we every month we see so talented that he will just win people over immediately with his physical impressiveness and charisma and it's like well not every match does he get the opportunity to even do that stuff so and i think there was a minority of fans like even a couple of years later when joe was really getting big in terms of just popularity there was always those few fans and you see them sometimes with kevin owens now who is just like Oh, he's fat. He like like there's some people that if they see a soft-bodied guy, they just instantly for some reason they they want to they want to hate them even if they're good. Yeah, and 2003 was probably the peak of the era where WWE was just hiring and promoting guys that all look very similar and, you know, none of them had soft bodies in any way shape or form. So you could see why maybe uh, an audience at that time would be especially tough on Samoa Joe. Yeah. And another story that happened uh, between the last couple shows is the AP ran a story about Michael E. King of Springfield, uh, I guess Vermont, who pled guilty on October 1st of selling copyrighted pro wrestling tapes over the internet. King, age 30, faces a maximum three years in prison and a fine up to $250,000 plus full restitution of $16,000 to the companies. He will be sentenced on January 2nd. King, who used the name Markout Video, sold tapes of Ring of Honor, WWF, and WCW shows. There is certainly irony, Dave Meltzer reports, since it is believed that Rob Feinstein, the owner of Ring of Honor, was the one who turned him into the FBI. I I remember people being very angry at Rob Feinstein for doing this. Yeah, um, I wonder why people forgot about this a few months later. Yeah, exactly. But I, actually, the main reason I wanted to bring this up is because something we'll talk about when we do the frightening Mount Everest episode that will be 
talking about the Rob Feinstein scandal and the show, the wrestling show that happened around that time, is that there, you know, people had a lot of people disliked Rob well before that scandal. And this was one of the things, because even Dave kind of calls it ironic, because Rob Feinstein had kind of started his career in part bootlegging things he didn't have the right to. And he even lost, I believe, lost a lawsuit to, I think it was Dreamwave or something, Entertainment, the people that owned Pride. So, yeah, the I, I mean... Well, it's also the fact, the fact that he had people who didn't like him was part of his defense when the uh, bigger scandal emerges a few months later. Exactly. That's a great point. So this is kind of going to give, if you listen to all these shows in a marathon binge over like three days in a year when we've done that episode, we're really just shading, doing some foreshadowing and really coloring in everything. But yeah, this is, these are the kind of things where, again, I, in a one way you can't blame Rob. I mean, it was copywritten material, but on the other hand, people viewed it as a massive hypocrisy given that Rob wasn't clean here, and this guy was facing some... I don't know what happened to this person, but... Yeah, I'd be curious to know like what his end, his eventual sentence was. I mean, do you... I don't know. I guess it depends on the judge and the, you know, and the court and stuff. If, like, if he actually... If this was a first-time offense, like if he was actually going to get real jail time for this. And um, one... I, I guess I'll just admit this. The first time I bought a Ring of Honor show, I did not buy it from our video. I, I bought it not from this man, Michael E. King, but I did buy it from a tape trader because I had heard some bad things about our videos like uh, customer service. So I was actually scared enough to want to try Ring of Honor, and but bought it from a tape trader. And then once I liked the show, I don't know what my teenage logic was, I then started buying a lot direct from ring of honor uh-huh. but for some reason i was scared the first time so i was like i'm gonna buy this from a tape trader i've never done any business with before because i trust them more than rf video like, by, by the time i started buying roh dvds it was already like you know a separate company ring of honor so there was i didn't i never ended up buying from rf video yeah and, and i don't know what other people's um experience with with i did most of my dvd buying when they were a separate company as well i don't know what most people's experience was with them i always got my dvds except one time i uh i did not get an order i wrote an email to them and no questions asked they just sent me the same order again and it got to my house so yeah i bought a lot of dvds and personally never had a problem with uh once they split yeah ring of honor is a separate company the wackiest story that i have i think i already told on the death before dishonor episode where i bought the original death before dishonor and it was a two disc set but they accidentally put in death before dishonor two night one (laughs) and night two so i got those two dvds for for like you know for the price of one and then just had to buy the original death before dishonor again yeah so that was uh uh error in your favor depending on what your mood was to yeah quickly to watch that show but um and then the last little bit of news in the Observer around this period, uh, they reported CM Punk is now working as head trainer at the new Ring of Honor Wrestling School. So this is when the school, I guess right around this time was when it had started. I believe Punk moved from Chicago to Philadelphia just to do the wrestling school. He he talked about on a shoot interview he did in late 2003 where the kind of the what got him into the wrestling school was just he had been laid off of his regular shoot job as he said in october 2002 and he just wanted he didn't want to have another real job he wanted to just make money solely off wrestling and so at some point he goes to uh rob feinstein i guess and and says hey like can i get a job stuffing 
envelopes here? Can I anything around the here? I just want to make some extra money, and I don't want to have a regular job again. And I guess Rob's response to that was, "How would you like to be the head trainer at a wrestling school? We're going to start." And he accepted. And I, I believe Punk never did have a regular job ever again after this. So. I mean, I don't know what he's doing now. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but Unless uh, you count writing comic books as a regular job, which I wouldn't. No, I would not. Um, uh, and this is, I guess that means that Shane Hagedorn is about to attend his very first ROH show as a sort of part of the company. Yeah, I mean, this is around the period where, I, for people that listen to his podcast, uh, an honorable mention, yeah, we're probably getting to the point where you know, I don't know how involved he's in behind the scenes of the company at this point, but any show around this time going forward, he he probably has more insight on in terms of, hey, I was around the company at this point. With that, that brings us to the show we are covering today, which is Tradition Continues, which took place October 16th, 2003, at Michael's 8th Avenue in Glen Burnie, Maryland, which is about 20 minutes from Baltimore for people that don't want to use Google Maps right now to figure it out themselves. It drew a reported crowd, and I wrote in my notes of who knows, because I almost always go by the, I always go by the Observer, but this time in one spot in the Observer, it said 450, and then later on in the same issue, it said 350. That's so, a pre- it's a pretty big gulf when you're talking yeah, about numbers like that. Yeah, it, it's a small typo on the keyboard, just one key over. But yeah, in terms of an indie financial math, that's probably the difference. I'm gonna bet it was 450 because I know they went back to Baltimore, and if 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 it was 350, I don't think they would have gone back to Baltimore. They almost um, went. They almost went back twice, but then something yeah. ha- then something happened. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, yeah. a, a PW Insider live report from a man named Marcus Dowling said that. On a night dominated by Game 7 of a tightly contested series between the Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees and WWE SmackDown, Ring of Honor drew a standing room only crowd of 500 plus individuals. So, I was definitely again, wa- I was definitely watching that game. I will say that. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, all, I think they even referenced that game on the commentary for the show like something about the Red Sox and the Yankees. For those who haven't seen um, Michael's 8th Avenue, this this building if you look at the website for it or just look at the building, it's pretty obvious. It's mostly seen at, as a booked as a place for weddings. It has a very a pretty low ceiling by like indie wrestling standards, or at least what we're used to watching Ring of Honor. And it has very prominent fancy chandeliers hanging from the building, which definitely gives it a different atmosphere than any other Ring of Honor show held so far. Although this certainly would not be the last venue they had with fancy chandeliers. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, like, uh, if you go to the website for Michael's 8th Avenue, it's, like, nothing but wedding pictures, and then I think one upcoming event is, like, a Halloween rock concert. I think they've done boxing events before, and obviously they were open to this stuff, but if you look at their website, you would just go, oh, this is a nice place to have a wedding if I'm in the Maryland there, if I'm in Maryland. Plus, and, a, plus a giant photo of the victorious, spoiler alert, Grim Reefer and Slugga. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> Grim Reefer. Um... And in talking about the show, Dave Meltzer from The Observer got, I guess, from Live Reports, he he wrote, Most of the TNA wrestlers, and AJ Styles in particular, were very over. It was harder for the performers who had never worked the city, as the crowd took a while to gel into them. Kind of a weird phrasing there, Dave. Um, <laughs> as per usual with Ring of Honor, <laughs> reports were it was a great live event, but more old school style, since that's what the crowd seemed to like than their shows in other cities. I read that so, too, and I, I was thinking about, like, is that something that rings true to me? 
that yeah, it that's, was... that's why I kind of brought that up. I wanted to know because I didn't really notice that, and I, I think even PW Insider had a live report at the time, and they said something like the fans. Like, the Ring of Honor guys really had to earn it, but, like, the bigger names that the fans already knew, I didn't really notice that that much, and I didn't really notice... The old-school style? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, maybe, maybe it was just more subtle, but I didn't notice, like, it did not feel dramatically different in reaction or performance to most Ring of Honor shows of this era. Yeah, I would, to me. I would firmly agree with that. But I, I did get from more, more than one live report, there was some, they kind of suggested a little bit different. So, And then the last thing before we get into what we actually saw on the DVD, this is, did not make the DVD, but apparently the promotion held a 10-bell salute for the late Stu Hart at the onset of the show, who had recently just passed away. So that's a nice little thing. It didn't make the DVD, but I, it happened. So we start the show with Gary Michael Capetta in the ring. And he puts he does a little like minute long speech. He puts over the Boston market, I mean the Baltimore market, and he and I guess this is where the show's name tradition continues goes for over. He uh, talks about some major wrestling events that happened in Baltimore, and um, eventually Prince Nana interrupts. He makes his way to the ring. Nana's mad that he hasn't received a Ring of Honor title shot yet. The crowd chants, "We don't care," which I thought was pretty a pretty funny and rude chant. Appropriate, and, also. <laughs> and soon Samoa Joe comes out to interrupt the interrupter. He gets a Joe chant and a solid round of applause. So again, this is my first sign that, you know, Joe wasn't a known TV commodity at this point. He got a, a, a solid reaction coming out here. Um, not a demand to get a title shot right now. Joe accepts. He almost immediately attacks. But then Nana makes a bit of a comeback during this. Like, I was surprised that Nana actually got a bit of offense here. But then eventually Joe just hits it in Zagiri, a suplex, rear naked choke. And there's no ref in the ring, so Nana is tapping, and then Capetta just has to get on the house mic and announce Joe's the winner, which was a little awkward, but, I mean, it's an impromptu match. I guess that adds to the fact that it wasn't, you know, the vibe that, ooh, it's not planned. Joe uh, said that Joe said that he was putting the belt on the line, though, which made me go, like, what about the top five? <laughs> Nana going to drastically fall down the top 28 rankings here tonight um uh joe gets back on the mic he welcomes the crowd to ring of honor he puts over the you know the great show we're gonna see tonight then joe says he's gonna choke out jay briscoe which brings out jay who grabs the mic asks joe to choke on this and then hits him with a yakuza kick they trade blows until uh officials and mark briscoe run in to break it up this was a textbook uh segment when gabe goes into a new market you know have the bright, colorful, cartoonish character come out like a Christopher Street connection or a Nana and then have someone that's like a, you know, either a real tough badass or a main event star or both in the case of a Samoa Joe or a low key come out and just destroy them early to kind of let you know, here's a big star. Here's what Ring of Honor isn't, even though like a fifth of our company actually is this thing that we're squashing and welcome to Ring of Honor. So... Yeah, and I, I, here is the thing that I took away from the segment, because I actually think this is a fairly noteworthy segment. This is really the first time that I've noticed that they really put Joe in there as the face and voice and spokesperson of ROH. You know, this is a role that Loki was sort of playing early on in the, like, the first few months of 2002. And this is Joe being like, this This is Ring of Honor. This is what you're going to see. And obviously, Joe plays that role a lot over the next few years. He is like the face of ROH. But he hasn't really posi been positioned that way at this point in our rewatch. 
And this is the first show where he really is. He's like, he is the guy in ROH. He's been the champion, but now he's the guy. And I don't know. I guess we'll see how much it continues. But it felt like that watching it here. And I'm and I can't remember it feeling like that before. And even if you look at the fact that he's getting the main event here as world champion, one of the problems with Xavier's title reign was they didn't seem to have the confidence in him to main event some of his singles matches as champion. You know, and that's the only real reign we have it to compare it to because low key's reign lasted one successful title defense and then he lost to Xavier. But here, you know, Jay Briscoe was not a big star yet. You know, he was he was unnoted name on the indies but he wasn't he was still really young and wasn't huge yet and so i feel like if, if this was xavier not only would he have he had not gotten a segment like this but he he probably would have not main evented you'd have well we've had we saw what happened when they had xavier versus jay briscoe it would be on the undercard and you'd probably on a night like this have cm punk versus aj styles main event but here it's just i think it's a sign of joe's like they're like you said the growing confidence in joe like no, Joe's going to be the main event. He's the champ. We have faith that he can like end the show well. Yeah, I'm trying to think of which which defenses Joe got to, Joe got to actually main event with. So this one, um, the one against Daniels, which was a long built up match. The one against Homicide, and Homicide obviously is a big push guy in ROH, and then the one against Doug Williams, which you know, kind of random actually. Um, yeah. But have any of the other as Joe main evented as in a singles title match. Oh, against Paul London also, and Paul London's farewell match, and that's it. Yeah. So this is this is this actually is like you said a good show of confidence in him because this is the sort of yeah, guy that you wouldn't expect him to necessarily main event with, you know. And he does, and I mean we'll get to it, but I think it it was a good choice. Yeah. And uh, we have another thing. I got this from a old. I went to archive.org and found in the Wayback Machine an old Death Valley Driver live report. Where it was sort of like, like a classic Death Valley Driver live report from where a bunch of the guys went to this show, and they had a, a little interesting tidbit that wasn't on the DVD. So one of them talked about how at this point in the show, I guess they announced that a couple in the front row had driven from the the, the uh, I guess the Ring of Honor announced like uh, Gary Michael Capetta or someone announced that a couple in the front row had driven from Miami to Baltimore to see this show as part of their honeymoon. So what a honeymoon! What a what a honeymoon uh, <laughs> destination tradition continues. You know, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna judge. It's classist. It's it's wrong. I'm not gonna do it. Like, just, now I'm just, see, that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm like, going to say. I, I think it's cute that you went to a wrestling show on your honeymoon, but the thing is, you drove from Miami to Baltimore for Tradition Continuous. I would have been like, honey, how about we wait a few weeks and go to that New Jersey show? How about we wait for main event spectacles? Like, uh, Yeah, I mean, a, just the idea we, that you I mean, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm, I was going to make a joke about Baltimore, but now I'm also not going to do that. I just, <laughs> just, I'm, I'm just very politically correct. That's what I'm trying to say. Look. Matt, they loved crab cakes and chandeliers. Baltimore has both here at Michael's Eighth Avenue, and it's as simple as that. So, it, I mean, I, I guess it is that simple. <laughs> next, we cut to Colt Cabana somewhere. It looks like it's backstage, but an on-screen graphic says it's the Second City for the second ever Good Times Great Memory segment. Colt is at his desk, and he says he beat Rob Feinstein at Dreidel and is the Dreidel Master. Uh, Colt says CM Punk will be on later, but first he brings in the Backseat Boys. The Backseat Boys have, uh, cigarettes. Coit points out that he has a thank you for not smoking sign on his desk. 
Colt then goes through, shuffles through some note cards that he's written jokes on. We only see the backs of these cards, and as he shuffles through them, we see that he has written on the back of them, these two are so gay for me. Uh, uh, kind of what makes this a little bit weird, awkward, or funny, depending on your view, is that Johnny Cashmere years later would come out as gay. So, Yeah, either- it's also just a, you know, dumb thing cheap, to say. Cheap, yeah. yeah, but yes, yes, um, I, I guess in the grand scheme of things, not... Not even close to the most homophobic thing ROH has ever done, so I guess I can't get too mad. And it's also, again, it's always weird when they do these gay things when it's like uh, Rob Feinstein is running the company, you know, and it's just, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's not on the level of when uh, young Wade Keller interviewed Bill Watts and Bill Watts made horrible homophobic comments and Wade was just like, eh, eh, yeah. But, you know, it is always extra weird. I mean, it's always bad to make weird, like, gay jokes and stuff. But it's extra bad when you know, well, kind of the guy that's paying you is, you know, maybe... I wonder how he felt deep down about this. But Colt asks the backseats how they can beat Special K a second time. Cashmere says, well, it was easy the first time. Trent actually gets offended that Colt's even asking that, the, uh, like, you... Why are you even asking us this question? Trent then cuts like a solid, actual kind of serious promo. Colt then asks the back seats if they've ever gotten, quote, chubbed up when people stuck dollars down their pants during their ring entrance. They said yes. Matt, this was a segment. I My takeaway was, man, I mean, Trent Acid's a much better promo than Johnny Cashmere. Like, much, yes. much, much better. So it is not surprising that he was the standout uh, guy from the two of the two of them once they broke up. Um, he actually had a lot of talent. That guy, I um, you know, so it's, it's it's he's not someone that people really talk about too much now as being sort of like it's a shame what happened, but it is a very big shame what happened because he actually he had a lot going for him, especially that really thick Philly accent. <laughs> you love that accent. He, I he do. A, I do love that accent. You, you know the weird Almost, thing? the only part, the only accent I love more is Ian Rotten's Baltimore accent. You know what's weird is I I have a bad ear for accents, so I never really noticed it that much. After on the last show you brought it up, when I watched this promo, all I could notice was his Philly accent. It reminded me of when I was a kid. There was a year of my life as a fussy eater. I've I've grown out of it, but when I was a kid, there was a year where every day for lunch I had Lipton chicken noodle soup, like the gross yellow. And one day my mom says, don't you think this is salty? And all of a sudden, from that day, all I could taste was the salt, and I never <laughs> ate it again. That's what you've done to me with the Philly accent. Now it's all I can focus on, thanks to your comment. You completely changed my brain. Well, you know, it's actually that. Well, you're welcome. First of all, <laughs> I, I ate that. You know, like the, you mean the Lipton tea with like the packets that you put into the water, and then like, like the Lipton chicken soup. That's basically just like yellow water with maybe a little tiny pieces of parsley and the noodles. And yeah, no yeah, meat, yeah. I lived I, on that for like a year as a kid. I, I, lo- I loved that too when I was a kid. I have not had it in good 20 yeah. plus years. I guess it had to be more than 20, but like 25 years probably. But um, the uh, yeah, so the thing about the Philly accent was I never really picked up on it as a thing until I watched ECW in the late 90s. Because if you watch like TV and movies set in Philly before that, like Rocky, for instance, everyone mm-hmm. had a New York accent. And it was, and I assumed that was just the Philly accent. And then, uh, and I, I would watch uh, ECW, and I'd hear like the Sandman talk, and I would hear like Francine talk and Stevie Richards, and I would be like, "What? What? what these guys are talking funny." 
And then I realized, oh, that's how they talk in Philadelphia. And then I'd hear the dead milkman, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is how they talk in Philadelphia. <laughs> and, and it's so, Or as they say, Philadelphia in, in, in Philly. Um, um, Fully. This is, this is Matt talking, not me. <laughs> Just... Hey, listen, it's an accent. I have one, I, you know, I have one too. It's, it's fine. You have one too. Don't, don't, don't you, don't you think you don't, um, eh? We all have them. And, (laughs) and that is the Philly one. And, uh, yeah, and, and, um, so does Trent Acid. That's my point. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, that brings us to our first official match that wasn't impromptu. That would be a tag team scramble match of the debuting Rottweilers. The original Rottweilers were, in fact, not uh, Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero, but Grim Reefer and Slugger, escorted to the ring by Julie Smokes, and they defeated Danny Doring and Josh Daniels, Slick Wagner Brown and Sanjay Dutt, and the Ring Crew Express. And this match was 8 minutes, 16 seconds long, and Slugger pinned Dunn after hitting a body bag. Matt, before I hand it over to you for your thoughts... Uh, from PW Insider comes this, which was the team of Slugger and Grim Reefer was a last-minute substitute as special K members Deranged and Hydro missed the show. Hydro is believed to have missed the show due to a personal commitment, while Deranged no show due to transportation issues. The company wasn't aware that he was going to miss the show. So apparently, the the, the debuting original Rottweilers was a uh, thrown together last-minute thing. And they were victorious, which is interesting also. Um, yeah, I had actually forgotten about the existence of Grim Reefer, Grim, Grim Reefer when, I, um, when, I, when, I, uh, when I started watching this match. I, uh, I remembered that Slugger was going to be in the original version of the Rottweilers, always. I always remembered that. Like, as soon as we started doing this rewatch, I was like, oh yeah, the Rottweilers, they start, and like, for some reason, like, Slugger is one of the guys. But I remembered the other guys being probably Benny Blanco or something. And it, I was like, oh yeah, Grim Reefer. Um, so that was weird. Obviously, it's weird to have Doring in it, although he doesn't look too out of place, I guess. Like, it's not like he's not as bad as I thought it would be. Um... But I like that there are some new faces um, in uh, in the scramble match. It, it you know it's it wasn't the best scramble, but I liked it. it you know it was just wasn't the same guys because for a long time it was like okay Carnage Crew some special K iteration the SAT and this one is is just full of different guys. Um, the, uh, the besides Danny Doring, uh, obviously his partner is Josh Daniels. And he's pretty talented, and it's interesting because we see so many talented guys who made it in early ROH, so it's kind of interesting to see the guys who faded out. You know, Josh Daniels is not, you know, a star in NXT today, for mm. example, but he was he was pretty good, I thought, you know. He had a kind of a Roderick Strong-esque slash Davey Richards-esque vibe to him at this point, and, you know, he didn't have a ton of charisma, but, you know, neither did Roderick Strong at the beginning, right? So... Well, I think I think you could tell just listening to the commentary on this that Gabe had a bit of that, not quite on the level, but a little bit of that John Walters kind of man crush on. Hey, this guy's a solid physique. He seems like a solid, fundamentally sound worker. Yeah, I could see myself liking this guy. I could definitely see Gabe liking him. Honestly, um, you know, I thought like the crowd definitely seemed to be the most into uh, the Ring Crew Express because um, they're you know cult favorites and they did well. I actually thought. That Sanjay Dutt was the star. He, uh, his was this was his ROH debut, was it not? I believe so. And he, yeah, he was. I thought he was hugely over here. Apparently, he had worked the defunct Baltimore promotion 
uh, in the area that we'll talk about a little bit a little bit later. Does so Maryland Championship Wrestling. Y- yeah, so that might have also been part of the reason why he was so over is that he was probably known to a bunch of these fans. Yeah, I, I mean the twisting phoenix that Dutt does. Um, I thought that was like one of the highlights of the match. Um, then he hits the he hits a dragon suplex on Daniels. I actually thought Reefer didn't look so bad. He had a really good frog splash on Dunn, and then Slugger hit the body bag for the win. I thought this was a short, shorter than normal um, scramble, but I didn't mind it. Like I thought, you know, there was enough chances for enough people to look good, and it was entertaining enough. This is not anything that you might want to go out of your way to watch, but they did a fine job with what they were given. I don't think anything was bad about it. Um, Dutt is obviously like, he's a pretty hot property at this point. Like, this is when he's really like bursting onto the scene. Um, the one negative besides, you know, that it was short and not much to it was, um, Punk on commentary. I thought, you know, he, he kicked Ray out of the booth and I thought he was pretty much just a distraction in this match. Um, although he does crack gave up when he says that he thought that Slick Wagner Brown's blonde hair was natural. Um, (laughs) that was like the one thing Punk added to the match, but otherwise it was, it was short. It was fine. Dutt looked good. I'd like to see some new faces. So overall, my impression was positive, even though it wasn't anything to write home about. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add to that. I, I agree. I thought it was a very, it was an average scramble, but it did have, as you said, the novelty of some fresh faces. Uh, Josh Daniels murdered someone with a German suplex that looked good. I thought Grim Reefer looked a little more hit and miss than maybe you did. There was one um, sent on, I think it was to Marcos, that looked like he absolutely just like killed him. Like You're supposed to kind of just hit with the edge of your back and kind of roll off the guy. He, he just came down with like a lot of weight on this poor man and looked like he murdered him. But, you know, maybe, what do I know? Maybe, maybe it didn't hurt him that much at all. Uh, yeah, I thought Sanjay was the most over guy right from the jump, but then I felt like uh, the Ring Crew Express got more over as they did some of their stuff. I feel like the Ring Crew Express at this point was just one of those acts that is just so infectiously likable that if you just let them do their thing for a few minutes, most crowds are going to go, hey, these guys are fun. Especially when they do stuff like their that gory bomb that Dunn likes to do, yeah. which I think always seems to get over like to a surprising degree. Like people love that move. Yeah. I mean, and Brink Crew Express, like for what they do, they're, they're good. Yeah. They're, they're a fun cult act. And it, it's kind of cool that, that and, like, I feel like in indie wrestling now, it's all just one level of guys, which is like really talented young wrestlers shooting for the moon, all getting really good opportunities. But, you know, in Ring of Honor at this time, there was like tiers of guys and you could have your little niche like, you know, the Ring Crew Express were never going to get a long, serious run of 20 minute matches against top acts. But they were going to always have a spot here for years as like this niche, like fun little undercard cult thing that the crowd always appreciated seeing. Right. And every was- once every once in a while, they get slight push-ish kind of thing, and then they kind of be dropped back down to their level again, and that's fine. Like, I I wouldn't have minded if they got a little bit more of a push than they got, but it's also not a horrible thing to have certain guys that are just like, you know, not everyone's going to make it to the top, not everyone's destined to rise up the same ladder, and some guys just have kind of like their guaranteed spot and role to serve, and these guys did, and they were great at it, so... I agree. Uh, next, we have a Field of Honor Block A match. Matt Stryker defeats Chris Saban via pinfall in 10 minutes, 4 seconds after he hits a Death Valley driver. Um, 
it's weird. In some ways, if I edited out some things, you would look at this match and go, it, it was okay. It was an average match. But it was notable for, I would say, a good handful of really obvious ugly botches. And most of them were committed by Matt Stryker. I don't know if he had an off night. I don't know if they just had a bad chemistry, he and Saban. But it's weird. Like, a lot of people really get down on Matt Stryker. I'm not as down on him as a lot of people are, and I don't think you're as down on him as I am even. I kind of see him as a a technically sound, kind of solid, fundamentally guy who, technical wrestler, who often he'll do a lot of technical wrestling at the start of his match, but not really have it play into the end of the match. But he's an average, he's like, he usually gives you a good average match. And I always saw him as a guy that, he can have good fire once in a while, but he doesn't have a ton of charisma. We should what, we should we should note for our thousands of new listeners that this is Matt Stryker with a Y, not the famous yeah. one from WWE. The unibrow with the Y, not the double brow with the I. So, um, but with with that being said, um, one thing I don't think even a bunch Stryker's harshest critics would. Co- criticize it for especially not me is being a sloppy worker i think in one of his strengths is he's usually not sloppy and if you watch this match um at first i noticed just a couple bits of minor miscommunication that were so minor i was like well maybe those weren't even miscommunication maybe i'm just being weird but then there's a big um power slam spot where chris saban springboards off the top rope striker catches him and just turns into a power slam and he barely rotates saban enough saban almost lands right on his head could have killed the guy to the point where even though he does get him over it looks like just enough the crowd chants you fucked up at striker then a moments later comes or a little while later comes a saban drop kick that looked like it smacked striker right in the face then a little bit later, we get a Matt Stryker powerbomb where he almost loses Saban mid-move. And uh, Gabe tries to cover this up by being like, Saban shifted his weight so he didn't have to take the full brunt of that impact. So I appreciated Gabe desperately trying to save this. But the biggest botch was right at the end where um, Stryker does something that he's done. I've seen him do, we've seen him do before, which is uh, Saban goes for a crucifix. Stryker rolls through the crucifix so that... Um, Saban is already on his shoulders for the Death Valley Driver, which is like his non-submission finisher, except for whatever reason, with the momentum or whatever, Saban, I mean, uh, Stryker can't seem to fully, like, stand with Saban. He can't really get comfortable with him on his shoulders, but he decides to do the Death Valley Driver anyway, and as a result, they, like, bonk heads together, and immediately, uh, that's the finish, but immediately Stryker, I mean, Saban's head he looks like he's been hurt. His head is cut, gashed open. Apparently a gash so bad, he needed 11 stitches was the report to close it. And people had wrote at the time, too, that uh, Saban was very... I mean, they were very lucky this happened at the end of the match because Baltimore has a notoriously strict athletic commission when it comes to blood. And they would have probably had, like, stopped the match mid-match if this had happened any point earlier. So, um yeah, you know, in some ways this was an average match. In some ways, if you just focus on the botches, it was kind of below average. It was like a a very uncharacteristic performance from Matt Stryker, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that it wasn't his best match anyway. Like, I thought there was a little bit missing from just the way they clicked, even if you took out the the botches and stuff. Um, but there was so much sloppiness. Um, I actually, when when... 
uh, Stryker hit the botched um, power slam that spiked Saban on his head, the crowd immediately jumped in with a you fucked up chant to yeah. the point where I was like, man, I don't know if this Baltimore crowd is like it's, it's an ROH crowd. Not that you never heard this stuff in ROH, but the how excited they were to start chanting it. You know, the original ROH crowds would have not been cool with that, I don't think. And I don't even think that was a complete botch. Like, that, I looked more as, like, that's a close call. At least it looked like to me. Like, you could tell he barely accomplished it, but it wasn't... I mean, he did not die. He did not land right on top of his head, I don't think. But he just barely got that rotation through. Yeah, I... I, That's that's a fair point. Um, Close enough, though, that they clearly... We're like, okay, here we go. We can chant it now. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that bugged me was Gabe's usual shtick where after Stryker hits the DVD, Gabe yells, did you see his head hit his face? And I was like, well, no, because it wasn't visible at all on camera. So, like, Gabe was just doing his sort of know-it-all. Like, I know there's an injury, so I'm going to act really smart about it. Um, <laughs> because, like, there was no way, like, I, re- I rewound it or whatever you would call it, you know, skip back a few seconds yeah. to watch it again. You definitely could not tell by watching that move that there was a botch from the angle that they showed it. You could tell after when you saw Saban's head, but uh, if it wasn't for Gabe's, um, if it wasn't for Gabe's commentary before showing it, I wouldn't have known anything was wrong. So I, the return of Know It All, Gabe. But yeah, the, this this match did not work on a number of levels. Obviously, um, I, I thought it was interesting after the match. The crowd, I mean, the referee was calling for help for a long time. Um, and it took a, it got it took a while for the ref, for a bunch of other refs to come out with a towel to help Saban, and the crowd really gave Saban a big round of applause at the end. Saban was only twenty years old here. It's crazy how young some of these guys were. Yeah, holy, and it, it, yeah, if you watch that, also not only do they eventually get the towel, but then if you notice at the end, I guess because it was taking so long, after he gets the towel, there's even a little shot where finally even Rob Feinstein comes comes down the aisle and like throws a towel into the ring. So I guess Rob was probably back going, "Oh Jesus Christ!" Like they're not getting the towel fast enough. So yeah. even he came out with a towel. Interesting that they impromptu booked this post match thing where. They followed Stryker and Saban to the back and had a little promo between them and backstage. Like They really just came up with that on the spur of the moment where Stryker was like, I was just trying to win the match, man. I'm sorry. I was just trying to win the match. And obviously yeah, that, like, wasn't, that wasn't planned, obviously, because Saban didn't plan on getting hurt. So Yeah, I was going to ask you. I was wondering, for those who don't, like, don't watch this, occasionally Ring of Honor would follow guys as they walked back through the curtain after their match and then instantly, like, as they go through the curtain, have them cut a promo. So it's kind of like this seamless, oh, you're right there in the action kind of thing. And they did this for this match, except it's all about this real shoot injury Chris Saban just suffered. So do you think that they had already planned a promo in this style and then just changed the topic of it on the fly? Or if they just knew enough to like, let's just roll with this. The cameras are following us because yeah, like they're just talking about like, Oh, I'm sorry. I hurt you, which, you know, this, if you watch this, it was clearly not planned. It's, it's a clear real cut. So, yeah, I mean, I guess probably the former that there was something planned anyway. And they just were like, well, let's go with what happened. Um, because or else that would be a lot of just like that would just be I don't know very quick movement on this and you know people wouldn't have really had time to be told about it. <laughs> yeah, like it would always um, be ambushing an injured Chris Saban with having to do like a kayfabe promo in that moment, which yeah, like, doesn't I, seem I, very I, nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, depending on how if he was really badly concussed, like this would be the kind of thing today people would look down on. Like, why are you having him cut a promo when he's got his bell rung? But right. you know, back then you wouldn't think it, nothing of it. But yeah. Um, 
The only other thing I noticed from this match was Gabe continues to say on commentary that the winner of the Field of Honor will get uh, so much prestige that their <laughs> career will skyrocket. And I know, Aww. you know, that was the intention of this tournament, but just knowing the future, I always just kind of cringe every time I hear that, like knowing what's going to happen. Like, I just, I know how this book ends. It's not the ending that you want. And I just feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, let me just see. Uh, next match was a Field of Honor Block B match. So we're going to the other block. Colt Cabana defeats BJ Whitmer via pinfall in 11 minutes, 38 seconds, after he hit some special rolling pin combination. I don't know exactly what you would call it. Um, I'm bad with that kind of stuff. Matt, what did you think of the match, and do you have a better name than, as I wrote, some rolling special pin combination? No, I just wrote it down as a wacky roll-up. <laughs> Which is, I guess, a flavor of fruit roll-up. I don't know. Um, um, I I thought there was a decent amount of comedy here, and I thought Punk actually his commentary added to it this time instead of detracting it like he did from the last two matches, because you know him and Cabana sort of have a shtick going with each other. Like Punk got really excited when Cabana tried to do a ser- a bunch of nip ups and then finally got it, and Punk was like, "Yeah, he did it." Um, <laughs> I also punk on commentary was talking a lot about the whole Lucy situation and he said that um he said that Steve Carino told him that it was the prophecy that did it and it's kind of funny because he's talking about this in a Whitmer match where it turns out that Whitmer actually took out Lucy and joined the prophecy so it's kind of I mean I don't know if this was already known at this point I'm guessing it wasn't but you know maybe the the um the audio was recorded close enough to the taping of Final Battle, so maybe it was. But um, yeah, I don't know. I thought the match was a little bit off. It wasn't. It wasn't great. Um, you know, kind of Whitmer. It was kind of methodical. Whitmer doing power stuff. You know, Cabana coming back, and then you know, he had hit a Colt for he uh, he escaped a Colt forty five. Whitmer did, but Cabana suplexed him and folded him up like a, an accordion before that roll up. So Cabana got some impact moves too. There was some other funny stuff like Cabana got an iron claw on Whitmer and Cabana and, Ga- and Gabe just scoffed like well, this is he's not a Von Eric. This is in Dallas. That, but then but then Cabana got a two count off of it. <laughs> that was the weirdest moment because. Um, yeah, Colt gets the Iron Claw. The crowd goes nuts. Some live reports said it was the biggest pop of the night. And Game on commentary sounds like outrage, like, oh, come on, the Iron Claw doesn't actually hurt. And he goes, BJ, BJ's just playing possum. And then BJ eventually comes back, and he's like, see, he was playing possum or something like that. It's like, no, he wasn't. Like, Gabe just is like, I don't know if Gabe has some horrible, like, where he just can't stand the idea of the Iron Claw. Clearly. But like, you don't, he had, like, a violent reaction to Colt Cabana doing the Iron Claw, even though the crowd loved it. Yeah, it's weird. The other thing about the crowd, which the crowd turned, made me turn on them a couple times already, at the beginning of the match, they were chanting, he's a homo, I think at yeah. Cabana, and it's like, ugh. Like, they, this one wasn't even brought on by the, the company. So this, <laughs> these, crowd, this, these people are just assholes. They were continuing a tradition, even if Ring of Honor didn't want to continue a tradition. That's right. Maybe we should, like, look closer in that crowd and see if a male fan was hitting a female fan. Like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm, I'm just desperate, Matt, to keep this streak alive. It, it brings some sense of, like, order to my life. No, 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 no. No. Um, this was... Yeah, I thought this was an average match. Uh, it was just very middle of the road. 
the thing that stood out most was Colt's comedy. The crowd really got into Colt's comedy. Like, he gets tripped by BJ when BJ does a drop down, and the crowd chants, you fucked up at him. And then, even though that was probably a planned spot, and he, like, fakes walking to the curtain like he's going to leave, but then comes back. And it's funny that Colt's comedy is, like, he's doing it more and more in matches, and it's really getting over. But I felt like in this match... It kind of clashed with BJ's style. Like, BJ's such a serious, like, hard-hitting, like, grrr, American Strong style, whatever, whatever you want to call it, guy. And Colt is doing the wacky stuff. And to me, it was kind of like watching a cartoon try to interact with, like, an action movie. It just was, like, two different worlds. And sometimes that works. I felt here it was, like, a little bit of, like... Not a styles clash, but more like a clash of tones. Yeah, I, I think this is... I would blame BJ completely for this one. Because I think that Colt, Colt was smart to do that. It gave him a different kind of hook. I thought this stuff was clearly working. So I, yeah. I blame BJ for just not having the wherewithal to roll with it. BJ was trying to have his BJ Whitmer match, and Colt was just doing what was getting over, and yeah, they didn't really mix. Yeah, you're right, you're right there. Um uh, this is yeah. I guess both of these matches. It's, it's a continuing thing. By the way, Cabana um, is two and zero oh now. Yeah, yeah, and uh, BJ is I think one and one now. Yep, um, I yep, one, yep, one um, and one. But I, I, I guess one thing is, I wonder if we're going to the field of honor is not over. But knowing that the final has a pretty bad reputation, I wonder if we're ever going to see like an actual really good field of honor tournament match because you would you know this tournament was built to try and raise the level of some of these mid-card guys and so far i think we've gotten mostly maybe entirely just a bunch of like nine to twelve minute kind of middle of the road average undercard matches like nothing yeah. horrible nothing the, great just... well the the best field of honor match was actually probably the qualifying match between uh striker and whitmer the one yeah. from Connecticut that ended in a in a draw, right? That was probably actually the best of any of them so far. Yeah, so it's just it's weird because like no one here is really I don't think they're really being put in a position to steal the show, but no one also is really like taking the reins themselves. Like no one's usually you, like there's been no standout performances so far in this tournament, which in a tournament you kind of hope you're going to get at least a couple like, wow, someone really elevated themselves tonight. And right, and everybody involved in the tournament, you know, like, there's, they're not the best of the best at this point in ROH, but they've all had great matches. Yeah. So it's not like it's impossible. It is weird that, like, the tournament is actually seemingly bringing these guys down in terms <laughs> of their peak performance and not lifting them up at all. Yeah, and uh, the only other thing is uh, Punk's commentary sometimes gets on my nerves. Um, these couple shows I've seen him on, but he, whatever he snarkily brings up that BJ is a horse, again, just to needle Gabe for comparing BJ to a horse, I love that he's keeping that going, and that's like one of the best things Punk has done in his career. Like, every time he's like, <laughs> hey, Gabe, isn't BJ a horse? And just, just I, I love that Punk has the ability, like, he's so comfortable with Gabe that he, he can really, like, twist the knife on Gabe and tease him in a way that probably most wrestlers aren't comfortable doing. It is cute. So, that they, like, they, they clearly have this, like, yeah, this, like, bond already. Um, yeah. Anyway. Like, the only other guy I've really seen that with is, like, Samoa Joe and Shooter Views will, like, lovingly kind of tease Gabe and talk about his tantrums and stuff. And I don't know how many wrestlers ever got that relationship with Gabe where they could, where they felt close enough where it's like, yeah, I can kind of prank this guy or, like, joke around with this guy, even though he's also kind of my boss. And, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. 
Um, after the match, Colt's backstage, and he tries to cut a serious promo where he says that he was serious tonight and that when he steps in the ring, it's all serious, which was weird considering that like half of this match was Colt Cabana comedy. Like, that was a real weird moment, I thought. Yes, I agree. Um, next, we have AJ Styles backstage, and he's giving Jimmy Rave tips for his match tonight. Our next match is a Ring of Honor tag team title match. That would be Special K of Dixie and Izzy defeating the backseat boys of Johnny Cashmere and Trent Acid in 8 minutes, 45 seconds, when Izzy pinned Acid after a springboard 450. Uh, I don't know why the backseat boys lost the tag titles in their very first defense. I'd be, I'd be interested in knowing why. I, I have some suspicions, but I, I don't know for sure. I thought as a match, this was below average. Um, I think the problem was Special K, Special K and Backseat Boys, they, they ended the gauntlet match on the last show where Backseat Boys won the tag titles. And I thought they had a real uh, fun few minutes where they just went crazy, hit a lot of wild stuff, it pretty much hit it all. And here, this is a much more traditional tag match. This Johnny uh, Cashmere gets hurt on the outside on a, on a move. And they double, they, Special K isolates and double teams Trent Acid. They build to a hot tag. And I just feel like it, that wasn't playing to Special K's strengths. I like traditional tag matches like that, but Special K weren't especially compelling, like beating down Trent Acid. And this match had, just had way less of the cool high-flying I want from these two teams. And then on top of that, you get all this needless interference at ne- near the end of the match where... There's distractions that last forever, multiple Special K run-ins, uh, the ref's making a two-count at one point, and Lit from Special K just pulls the ref out, and there's no, de- no DQ. And then, even at the end, Trent Acid gets hit with a belt shot. They uh, Special K make a cover. Trent Acid kicks out, so you think, oh man, maybe Backseat Boys are going to win this. But nope, Special K just hit two more moves and the match ends. So it was like a twist just to have a twist. And I don't know. The, the whole match kind of felt like something you would have seen on like Raw in 2000, and not in a good way. I, I like this match a lot more than you did. Um, I thought it was good. Like I thought it was a pretty good match. Um, I thought they had they started off with enough of the like the wacky spot, the big flying spots. Like one in particular that I thought was cool was that um, Special K hit this almost like like one of them held. Um, Held Kashmir like almost in like a wheelbarrow position, but like with his with his um with his head facing the floor, and like like uh, like on the floor of the of the ringside, you know, next to the ring, and the other one went off came off the top rope with a leg drop, so like it was like a leg drop face plant like double team move, and I thought that was really cool. Um, I thought Izzy's reverse Rana always looks good. And then once it settled into a regular tag match, I thought it worked because it's, yes, it's sort of the thing you could see on Raw, but it's not the sort of thing you see in ROH. So it kind of worked as like, oh my God, what are these, these, you know, these dastardly heels doing to our, to our tag team titles? So, you know, all the interference and the belt shot, you know, like it is very traditional, like Raw or even TNA kind of stuff. But I thought it worked here, and I thought Acid's kickout was surprising. You know, maybe partially because I knew that um, I knew that Special K was going to win here, and I thought that might be the finish because I hadn't seen this match in a long time. But you know, like that that happened right after you know the back seats hit the dream sequence, hit the T gimmick. The crowd was going nuts for it. And then the and then lit pulled out the ref. Then the belt shot. Then the 450. 
um, on acid for the win. I thought that wacky hijinks kind of worked. So I thought it was a, a pretty solid match. And the other thing that really stood out to me that made me happy was they actually, this was the ROH debut of the final countdown. Because during their post-match celebration rave, there was a techno version of the final countdown. <laughs> years before Brian Danielson introduced it to ROH. So they are the originators of that, uh, of that, mo- of that song in ROH. One thing I noticed with the Backseat Boys at this match, I think we've mentioned it before, but they were such a unique act, at least for Ring of Honor, in their reactions where so, I would say eight times out of ten, seems like they get a really mixed reaction where like there's women screaming, which you never hear for pretty much anyone else on these shows. There's some people booing that don't like them, and there's some people that cheering. And usually by the ends of their matches, they've got they've won some extra people over. It's like it's such a weird kind of passionate mixed response that no one else on these shows gets. Like they had something different. And it, it's it, it is it, you know, I know some people love Backseat Boys as workers, some people hate them. What I don't do think I don't think them? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think Backseat Boys ever really had a really good tag team match in ROH. Yeah. But there's just something, there, there's something they bring to the table, like, and, and, and again, most of that's probably Trent Acid, we've talked about before, where he just had something you couldn't quite put your finger on, but there's definitely, like, an energy when they perform that no one else has, and I don't, and I, I don't think they're, like, great as a tag team, I don't think they're bad, but at least in what we've seen so far, but there's just something they have. It's, it's and in a way it's kind of tragic. They never, you know, like this is kind of their high point was winning the tag titles on the last show. Yeah. And honestly, like I know you didn't like the match, but this to me might've been their best tag team match in ROH so far. I mean, I guess you probably feel differently, but I, what, I mean, like what's better than it? Obviously, you know, the really good matches were trans singles matches with homicide, yeah. but as far as like tag team matches they've had, I mean, maybe I guess you like their performance in the Gauntlet series better. But I, I think so far, at least, this is the best tag team match I've seen them in. I mean, this is the most fundamentally sound match they've done in Ring of Honor in terms of it follows a very specific structure and everything kind of follows and makes sense. I guess it's just I'm I kind of with Special K and the Backseat Boys, I think I was primed for more just absolute craziness. With with them, I kind of don't want structure. I just want, like, wild stunts. And I felt like this was them doing a, more, a much more traditional match. Right. And um, also, I, I'm surprised you didn't mention this, but this was another instance of something I know you love that you've already pointed out happening once in the show, which is Gabe knows everything. At the start of this match, Gabe telegraphs the title change by saying he thinks the backseats will hold the tails for a long, long time. Oh, yes, that did that did bug me. I think I must have skipped over that in my notes. Um, yeah, he says it twice, actually. And it's like, all right, well, now, again, we, now we know what's happening. This is something Gabe would never do in any other title match, but it's one of those things like, I don't mind as an announcer, you knowing some things that happen and like going, I predict this guy's going to win. And then he wins, but then you have to be wrong sometimes too. You can't be right every time. So, so th- this time he was wrong then. I, I'm, I'll, actually, yeah, <laughs> he, okay, did ex- he, lo- he did exactly <laughs> what you wanted. God damn it. I, I just I just foiled myself there. Um, I like okay. it. Okay, Gabe did great. Uh, I'll I'll, ed- I'll edit it out if you want me to. No, no, no. Uh, no I I guess I was just stupid there. Uh, see, you know what? Gabe's the great at commentating because I'm 
I'm the dumb one, not Gabe. We're uh, all we're all the dumb ones compared to Gabe Sapolsky. <laughs> uh, after the match, the lights go out. Special K rave until Loke comes, runs in, and gets beat down. This is where the final countdown was played, I believe. Gabe says DeVito couldn't be here tonight because he's working overtime at his regular job, which is one of those great moments of like indie wrestling honesty of like guy couldn't be at the show tonight he had to like work well it, so, i mean uh, it's it just they, he said it it was honest because it clearly fits into the character yeah yeah it, it works perfectly and then the rottweilers of slugger grim reefer and julius smokes come in they take out special k to end the segment something i thought was interesting when i was reading like the pw insider stuff was i didn't know this and i don't even know if this is true this just came from like one report and in PW Insider, but they say HC Loke just became Ring of Honor's first backstage agent at this point. So that's interesting to even think the idea that they had a backstage agent and it was HC Loke. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder like who else had that role over the years. I know he was kind of a locker room leader in the sense of a year later when I've been going recently through some 2004 pro wrestling torches, like one of the guys they would get on the record quotes from in Ring of Honor was H.C. Loke. So it seemed like that was one of the guys probably where Gabe said, like, if you want to talk to guys, like, here's a guy that mm-hmm. I trust, like, talk to this guy. He'll tell you what's going on. Right, right. But uh, next we get a, a, a match that's a little bit bigger. It's AJ Styles defeating CM Punk via pinfall in 18 minutes, 10 seconds, after he turns a Shining Wizard into a Styles Clash in a great finish. Matt, before I hand it over to you, a couple things to mention. The ring, this match didn't really, it's one of the rare Ring of Honor matches that had like, at least of this of this importance, of star level, that really had no story to it. And going into the Wayback Machine, Ring of Honor's website at the time said, you can now book Ring of Honor. Check out the poll on the left menu and you can decide whether AJ Styles or Justin Credible will be Raven's opponent at Tradition Continues in the Baltimore area. The man in the poll who does not take on Raven will most likely be against CM Punk that night, although that that is not a, def- a definite. So the reason, I guess the reason why this match had no story is because they literally just put up to a random poll. And then before the match starts... Punk got on the mic. He uh, says prescription drug use is on the rise. I wrote in my notes, oh my god, Punk foresaw the opiate crisis. So, Punk, 10 years ahead of his time. And he says people are doing their Prozacs and Percocets. And then he cuts this normal straight-edge promo. And that's it. Yeah, I mean, so about the match. Um, well, first of all, I almost wonder, like, for that poll, if you like, did people vote? For the person they like better to win that poll, or are they like, or are they voting against the person they like better because they wanted the AJ Punk match? Like, should AJ should AJ be offended for by losing that poll, or should he consider it um, uh, a, that he was done as solid? Yeah, I have to think they weren't voting for Justin Incredible versus Raven. They were voting for AJ Styles versus CM Punk. We at least like to think that, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean. It was still er- fairly early in their careers, but I think even in 2003, I think that's the match the crowd would be more interested in. But Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, I would, it would kind of be crazy to not be more interested in that. But as far as the match itself, so you had mentioned to me um, that Punk, and you might have even mentioned it, um, I don't remember if you messaged it on air or off air, that after all these matches with Raven and Terry Funk that Punk had said that he really just needed a match with a younger, more athletic guy so he could do the ROH style and show that he could really work that yeah. style. 
Hawk said in a shoot interview, he just said that, uh, he said something to the effect of, like, I went up to AJ before this match and was like, boy, I, I use, like, I really need this match. And he, and, and Punk said, you know, it's not that I don't like working Raven, but I can't have, like, the athletic style of matches I like having. And then I guess AJ, he claims, said to him, like, I need this match too because I've been working Jeff Jarrett lately. So, like, apparently both guys felt maybe a little constrained in the months leading up to this. Yes. And um, then you could tell, like, especially with Punk, you could tell he was working, he had his working shoes on and he was full of ideas. Um, yeah, there was, there was no hook to the match, but as far as just like a good wrestling match between two over stars, like you have to, um, you have to say that Punk was, um, Punk and AJ did a good job. Like Punk, you know, did a lot of mat wrestling with AJ early, which, I mean, it's very rare to see that from CM Punk, even in this era, mm-hmm. um, that stuff. And he did a pretty good job. You know, he held his own. There's some cool, there's just a bunch of cool spots. Like, um, AJ, he went for the Styles Clash. Punk rolled out. But AJ, like, landed on his feet, hit an insigiri, and Punk went to the outside. I thought that was a really good spot. Um, Punk kept ramming AJ into the guardrail and sarcastically mocked the ref's instructions. Like, the ref was like, getting back in the ring. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'll do that, sure. Um, I like that Joe actually made an appearance on commentary. Um, another just thing that showed that Joe was being more promoted as a, a, a voice of the company. He stopped in to talk about his upcoming matches, to talk about Punk and AJ. You know, just it was just a quick pop-in moment. He didn't, like, stay on the commentary for the whole match. But it was good stuff. Um, but, like, you know, AJ went for the moonsault, you know, reverse DDT. Punk caught him and hit a backbreaker. You know, just, like, a lot of stuff that you just don't see from Punk. Um, they have they have their chop battle, which I'm sure Punk was happy to have one of those because that's in all of the epic ROH matches, right? <laughs> um, you know, Punk hit a um, you know an arm trap DDT, and the crowd chanted ROH, so you could say the crowd was really into it to chant that after a DDT. <laughs> um, uh, AJ hit the discus lariat, and both guys were down. And AJ went for like a second rope styles clash, but Punk escaped. AJ caught Punk off the Shining Wizard, which is a really cool spot. Like, Punk went for the Shining Wizard. AJ caught his leg, but also, like, put his arm around the other side of him, stood up, hit the Styles Clash, got the win. I thought that was an awesome finish, and the match was very good. Um, Everyone was motivated. Punk was really motivated. It was solid. It was, you know, not a match of the year or anything, but just a good, like, undercard version of a match with two main eventers, if that makes sense. I, I completely agree. I think this was, like you said, very good match. It, it's not. Uh, it's right in that level below, like the Steve. It, it's it's a level below, like the Steve Carino homicide. You know, st- homicide Samoa Joe matches where it's like, oh, you have to go out of your way to watch this. It's not on that level, but it's very good. And yeah, like you could tell, these two were just full of ideas, like you said, and just. I guess if you want to look at a flaw. There's not a ton of story to this. It's uh, Punk does work on AJ's back, but it doesn't really go anywhere, mostly because Punk doesn't really have a lot of moves in his arsenal that like focus on the back. It's not like when he goes for the Pepsi Plunge that works on the back or anything like that, or the Shining Wizard. But there was just a lot of cool ideas in this match. Like, that early mat work, not only was... Th- was it just different from some punk matches, but it's like a lot of it was punk trapped in a leg vice, like the legs wrapped around his hips and it didn't always look tight, but it was interesting. And then they both ended up doing hand headstands out of that and slapping each other while they're upside down. Like they were just trying to do inventive things. You could tell they probably were just like before the match going, 
want to try this, want to try this, want to try this. Like, I think Punk in the shoot interview talking about this match even said that, like, the finish, the cool Shining Wizard into the Styles Clash was just AJ asking Punk before the match, like, do you think I, you could do the Shining Wizard in a way where I could turn that into the Styles Clash? And Punk was just like, I don't know, let's try. And it was just, the whole match kind of felt like that, like, can we do this? I don't know. Let's do it. Like, let's, let's try this. Yeah. That, and, that's, it, and that's always great to hear. Like, uh, you know, guys are just like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. And, and these two were telling it off tonight. You know, sometimes people have a match like that and it's probably more like the Matt Stryker, Chris Saban match. But these guys on this night were talented enough where like all these weird little things that they wanted to try all worked really well and were entertaining and nothing got screwed up. Um, AJ hit at a fan. If you're a fan of drop kicks, he hit a fantastic drop kick in this match, like Okada level. I got one snark- when I posted a gif of that on Twitter. I got one snarky person saying AJ did that before Okada. And like, <laughs> well, yeah, but you know what I mean. I'm saying, and in a way, I'm kind of saying there was great drop kicks before Okada. Um, and maybe it's also working punk who sometimes is a little light on some of his moves but this was another match where i just noticed how like how hard hitting and crisp everything aj styles does like he's just so tight in execution on everything everything is just occasionally he'll might have an off match i think he a few shows ago he did but usually it's just everything looks so solid and there's so much of a weight for a high flyer like there's so much weight to his moves and well, he's a he's a pretty thick guy like he's like he's stacked yeah, he, yeah, he's got muscle mass out yeah. of the, the old wazoo, as they would say. Um, I, I, another thing, um, Punk ended up bleeding early on, and I thought, oh, did, did Punk, like, get cut from mat wrestling? And then Gabe pointed out he was cut earlier at a TNA show and just, I guess, rolling around. The cut got opened up, but the cut seemed to, like, not bleed hardly at all. The first time so, ever that you could say that about a CM Punk cut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one of the first times where like Gabe called out an injury, and I was like, "Oh, that's informative," and, and yeah. I appreciate that. Like, so a lot of different things happening on this match. Uh, before the match, you heard one fan heckle Punk by saying, "You suck in TNA too," which got a laugh. Like, like he wanted to expand his heckle. Like, I think you suck in a variety of places. Uh-huh. Um, and then finally, this is something we've heard before, but it's something that like it irked me a little. Gabe and Doug t- during this match talk about the laws of honor and I, they talk about like th- they go something to the effect of it's not like you'll get DQ'd or fired over breaking these laws. It's more of a moral thing and you'll have heat with the boys. And it's like, then why should we care? Like, well, that's always been their thing, right? Yeah, but I feel like this was the most naked, like open. They, they just like they literally just said, like, really nothing will happen to you. They right. literally said it's more of a moral thing. Right, you'll like, have heat with the boys is like, okay, but also lots of other things you could do will give you heat with the boys too, so. Like, it's just, it's always weird when it's like, we have five hard rules of honor here, like, drawn and lined in the sand. What will happen to you if you break them? Eh, not much. H.C. Loke might be annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Rest, wrestler's court. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, that brings us to intermission. And Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with the Backseat Boys. Gary keeps asking Johnny Cashmere what happened in their match tonight, but he won't answer. He won't talk. Trent's pissed off that Special K interfered. Cashmere walks away as Trent tries to get him to come back. So yeah, building so. an angle that well, can't yeah. wait for that angle. Um, well, I was going to say, like, uh, if there if there is a payoff to this, it's at the next show because 
I know that within two shows from now, they're just back as the backseat boys of old. So I'm actually wondering if, like, anything really... Because there's more to this later in the show, but, like, clearly they're building, like, a big, like, almost, like, reckoning point with Johnny Cashmere. Yeah. And it doesn't seem seem to lead to much. Something, I guess, maybe I I was debating whether to bring this up, but it seemed like Johnny Cashmere and Gabe Sapolsky did not get along, but I don't know how far back it went, because... I uh, watched a bit of Johnny Cashmere's shoot interview to do some research for the show, and he makes it very clear he does not like Gabe Sapolsky. He recounts a time where he, I guess, and and Trent got some opportunity doing some like minor work for WWE, and Gabe got, I guess, irritated and phoned Cashmere that Cashmere credited that to Paul Heyman and not to Gabe for hooking him up with that opportunity. So Cashmere didn't like that. And then I guess the big thing was Cashmere ended up missing a Ring of Honor show because he was sick, but then he ended up working his shift at a bar that night and word got back to Gabe. Gabe called him, was really angry, like, you know, oh, you can work at a bar, but you can't work a wrestling show. And they got into a fight and that was like the end of it. So watching this, this shoot, you get, you definitely like, he makes some pretty snide comments about Gabe. I wonder how far back those went. Like, maybe Gabe here was kind of trying to separate them. Because he already had given Trent two big singles matches. Yeah, and and the Baxi boys are not long for ROH. Like, they're around yeah. for a few more months, but that's that's it. And Trent doesn't stay to get to do much after that. But, like, he does get a match with Samoa Joe po- post-Cashmere uh, leaving. Right. So, obviously, Gabe had more... He had more time for Trent Acid than he had Johnny Cashman. For sure. Um, meanwhile, we cut to Special K backstage partying in some room as Lit vomits into the bathroom toilet. Dixie is wondering how many ounces of drugs he can get for his Ring of Honor tag team title belt. This seemed like the lamest party ever. <laughs> it's just like it's a few people in a quiet room. They're sort of shimmying a little bit and one guy's puking. <laughs> like, like that's, that's literally the whole party. Like, what... what I mean, I guess maybe drugs just make the lamest party seem cool. I mean, I'm not a drug user, so I don't know. But is that the implication here? Because this did not seem like a fun party. This wasn't exactly Studio 54. Only dopes do dope, Matt. And uh, Field of Honor, Block B action. Something else that only dopes do is this match. Oh, no, that's too too mean. Um, (laughs) uh, Field of Honor, Block B match. Dan Moff defeats Jimmy Rave via pinfall in six minutes, 50 seconds after he hits a burning hammer. Uh, this wasn't much of a match. Obviously, it's below seven minutes. I wonder if part of that was because this was Moff's first match back from a pretty serious injury against Low Key. Maybe they were just like, let's ease him back into this, not do it too long. Uh, Jimmy Rave. I, I realized that the storyline of Jimmy Rave in the Field of Honor is he loses every match in part because he's ignoring AJ Styles' um, advice, and that's kind of building up a, you know, uh, irritation for the future. So I realize that's part of the story. Even that being said, I thought Jimmy Rave came off like, I hate using this word, I hate when Brian Alvarez does it, but he came off as a geek, Matt, in this match. I felt like he got beat up a bit too much. There's a moment, a key moment in the match, where he goes to hit his running knee, but Moff covers up his like clutches his injured neck and so rave takes pity on him and stops and then of course ray uh moff was just suckering him and, and you know playing playing injured when he wasn't and i think something that made him look even dumber was at the near the end of the match he does his from dusk till dawn crossface which works over the neck 
And Moff just kind of like gets out of it fairly quickly and goes right to his finish. And it just made it feel like not only did he like avoid the neck sometimes, when he did go to the neck with his finisher, Moff was like, yeah, whatever, I'm going to kick your ass. Like, Moff's the heel here, and Rave looked looked like just a complete, like, I've seen Ring Crew Express performances where the guy got, felt like more of a serious threat. Yeah, I I, I mean, what you're saying is completely true. I don't mind it as much as you, just for the very fact that it is the storyline. Like, I, you know, like, if you don't want to say geek, I'd say, like, the, the gimmick is, like, he doesn't listen to AJ, but also that he lacks a killer instinct. Like, he's talented, but he won't go in for the kill. He's too nice. He goes, he's too easygoing, and he gets destroyed for it. And I think that's a, it's a reasonable way to book a newcomer, like, young guy. Um, so I didn't mind it too much. I will say that Moff has a lot more charisma in the ring than he does on the mic <laughs> after those last couple <laughs> of shows, like the promos on the last show. You know, he definitely, you know, comes off as like has a, having a personality here. He even gets a small welcome back chant, which is, yeah. um, which is nice to hear. And I think he looks pretty good throwing Rave around the ring. Like, I, I, I actually enjoyed the heel spot where he's like throwing Rave into the guardrails and then he goes to the crowd. He's like, move out of the way. I'm going to throw him in. I'm going to throw him <laughs> into the crowd. And he like, and he like tees like a big tease that he's going to like just chuck him into the crowd. Then he just spins him around and throws him back into the ring. I thought that was a very nice little heel spot that I don't ever remember seeing before. I'm sure it's, I'm sure he didn't invent it, but. But one thing I really liked about that spot was that's when Jimmy Rave started his comeback was right after that spot. And I felt like that's a perfect place for the comeback because it's like Moss spent so much time, like just playing a joke on the fans. So I thought like, that's the perfect time to like, if you're the baby face to make your comeback, cause you've had this time to recover. That's a good so, point. Yeah, I did. I did like that. Yeah. yeah that's a very good point. It's a good, and also like the comeback cause it involved like rave hitting that running knee off the apron, which I thought looked very good. Um, I also enjoyed punk here on commentary. I like Punko's. I'm still better than AJ Styles because I'm drug free and alcohol free. And Gabe's like, so is AJ. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then also, um, that was one of Gabe's best lines. Yes. And while I'm not into the misogyny of the situation, I do think this is a little different because I know that like Punk and AJ, I mean, I mean, not Punk and AJ, uh, Punk and Alice in Danger, mm-hmm. you know, we're kind of friendly with each other. So like Gabe goes that Alice in Danger is hot, you know, which, you know, whatever, that's Gabe. And Punk goes, she's hot. She looks like toilet water. Yeah, and she says her hair's the color of 2,000 flushes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, uh, just because she's a woman doesn't mean you're not allowed to razz on her. And Punk does this to everyone, so I don't really consider it part of like the misogynistic trend, just more him giving a hard time to a rival slash buddy in the back. Yeah. So I, I thought that was uh, I thought that was funny. And I thought the Punk's delivery was very good there. Um, the Burning Hammer got a dangerous... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it was not much of a match at all. It was just, but it, I think it got the job done for what it meant to get done. And I don't mind the booking of Rave here. He's eliminated from contention, by the way, with this match. Yeah, this three straight he losses. Zero and three. He, yeah. he doesn't get a win, and this Moth, because of the injury, he has to kind of play catch up. This is his first match in the tournament, so he's off to one and zero when when Rave is already done. But um, the only other thing I noticed in this match was. Uh, Moff, you know, he does have charisma, and I thought one weird thing he did was, like, he would do heel things, like that tease of the crowd, of where I'm going to throw a guy into the crowd and stuff like that, and he attacked uh, Rave Rat the bell, 
but yet he also sometimes would kind of do babyface things. Like at the end of the match, he really plays up like the crowd reaction, like stands on the turnbuckle and like poses as as the crowd cheers him. Like it felt like he didn't like sometimes he wanted to be a heel, and then sometimes when the crowd was cheering, it's like oh okay, I want I, I want this reaction right now. Right, like, true, it's, true. It's not it's not it's not like a horrible thing. It just felt like he couldn't quite make up his mind what he wanted because the crowd did. Like as you said, like we're like happy to see him back, but and he kind of didn't really know how to play it exactly. I feel like some people would have just gone like, I'm gonna say like, "F you, I don't want your applause." But he kind of was like, "Well, I want your applause, and I also want you to boo me sometimes." Some but, some people would have done that, but let's be honest, very 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 few wrestlers would have done that. I it's you don't really see too many guys in ROH even in this era and also now who really commit to the heel yeah. thing when the crowd wants to like them. And Daniels kind of had the same problem on the last show where he's supposed to be a heel against Samoa Joe, but that crowd loved him. You know, they wanted Christopher Daniels desperately to win that match. Right. So, um, post-match, we get backstage and AJ Styles berates Jimmy Rave for not going after the neck. AJ even pulls out the classic dad line of, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. So, uh, that storyline continues. Moff and Allison Danger are outside the building. Moff says one down, two to go in the field of honor. He goes on to say that he took Loki's best shot at Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies, and he's still standing, bitch. So Second show uh, in a row where someone calls Loki a bitch. I wonder if this is like a, an edict from on high at this point. <laughs> I, I believe it's like... I, I know the show where we'll be talking about the first split is the next show, so we're getting up on that point where tensions come up, but... Next up, we have a kind of a, inter- a weird segment where Maryland Championship Wrestling, I just wrote here, person, Dan McDivitt comes to the ring to talk. Uh, Dan says, he and another man ran this building every other month for five years as part of Maryland Championship Wrestling before they moved on to other things, and there's been no better replacement than Ring of Honor. He puts over Shane Shamrock, an indie wrestler who died tragically before his time. Dan says he worked out, he worked with Ring of Honor that not only will Ring of Honor be returning to Baltimore, but they will be making it a regular home and will run a sixth, a sixth Shane Shamrock Memorial Cup, which was a memorial tournament MCW used to promote. And that got one of the bigger pops on the show. Does that end, does that end up being survival of the fittest? The, Matt, that's, it, that's a little bit of trivia. It becomes survival of the fittest. What happened is, um, basically, the the weird world of like event promotion you have to have a promoter's license to to run shows in a state and apparently it's hard to get a promoter's license you can't just really get a new one i don't know why the heck that is in your wacky country matt but um you have to just basically get the use of someone else's so i guess the, the this guy in maryland championship wrestling had the access to someone named dick karakofi's promoter's license and then after the raw feinstein scandal happened and then that second wave of the scandal happened in 2004 um where it was revealed that rob was still kind of involved even though he's everyone said he wasn't that he just said we're not i don't feel comfortable letting ring of honor use the promoter's license and the survival of the fittest was still going to be that same tournament format that it ended up being but it was going to be the shame shamrock cup in baltimore so were the previous shane shamrock cups also that format where it's I don't think six, so. a six-person elimination? I, I don't I would, think so. I would have to go back and check. I don't think so. But all I know is that they, they, they just basically – the tournament was already booked that way, and they moved it to Philly because they lost their uh, Baltimore promoter's license. And in fact, 
this is the first of only two shows of this era. I mean, Ring of Honor runs Baltimore now, but this era, like uh, the draws they they drew here, was enough that it probably could have been a regular stop for Ring of Honor. And because they lost the promoter's license, they only run this show and then one more early two thousand four, and that's it for a long time. Um, one interesting thing that Dan McDevitt says, and I actually was curious your take on it. He says ROH was the best wrestling company in the country, bar none. And he says that it's the best locker room he's ever seen. Now, the best locker room he's ever seen, that's kind of a a tricky one. I don't know what locker rooms he's seen. But was ROH the best wrestling company in the company in October 2000, in the country, I mean, October 2003? Uh, I'd have to go back and think, but. I think maybe yes. I mean. I I, I think maybe. I I think it's a more exciting promotion. I feel like you feel like you're you're watching something that's more on the cutting edge, that's on the way up. And I think especially in a couple months, once we get to like Final Battle 2003, which is like, apart from Otani and Tanaka, the first time Ring of Honor really does like a big Japanese talent show, like. I think that kind of changes the Ring of Honor's perception where this is where big names like kind of sp- like moonlight here in Ring of Honor. Yeah. And that's where it kind of rises a level above maybe the other indies in a whole new way. They're a couple of months away from that. But I think even now you could probably make a case. Yeah, I mean, if you were comparing it to like WWE at the time, 2003 was not a great year for WWE, um, especially on the booking end, but also like on the business end. And I think, you know, when you look back, you know, this part, this era of 2003, like the second half of 2003, not a lot of great highlights. You know, they were having what, like Vince McMahon versus Stephanie McMahon on pay per view, and and things like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, WWE's locker room, you know, had a lot of legends at the time, and it was very talented. But as far as what they were doing with it, like you said, ROH was very exciting. The booking was pretty solid, and uh, the you know they still felt like they were a company on the rise. So I. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's a stretch at all to say they were the best in the in the country at the time. And on the indies, I don't really know who else was even competing for that title at the at this point. And at this point in wrestling, there weren't a lot of things that felt like they were on the rise. You know, like WWE. It was that depressing era where we were kind of only two years after the boom really ended, and WCW and ECW went away, and it just felt like like what's wrestling's future? And the indies hadn't really filled a lot of the void yet but ring of honor was starting to get to that spot but i mean people forget dave Meltzer said he thought that like the observer would go out of business when within years when ecw and wcw went out of business so it it was kind of a depressing time for like it wasn't a high bar to be kind of like the most exciting coolest place for wrestling at this point i think just being something different and new was like we people were thirsty for it yeah i agree so it's, it's like an, a, a superlative statement, but not, not crazy at all. And uh, we come back after intermission with the match that fans either demanded or didn't demand, depending on how you thought why they voted on that poll the way they did, because it's Raven defeating Justin Credible via pinfall in 7 minutes, 58 seconds, after he hit the Raven Effect DDT. This was another match tonight I was not hugely fond of. It was really basic match the one thing i appreciate about raven matches is that even if a lot sometimes they don't hit with me like on a on a real emotional level they're all they're usually at least a lot of the ones i've seen in ring of honor from this period are well constructed in the sense of 
you can see like all the parts and you go, Oh, I know why they did this. I know why they did that. Like, you know, credible gets the heat here. Raven makes his comeback, you know, then they, then they get to the point where they trade a few near vols and it's over. Like there's always a bit of a structure and you can, you can practically hear the pre-match meeting where it's like, okay, you'll do this, then I'll get the heat, then I'll do this. And then we'll go to this. And, but it was really basic. It felt like a, like, just like in a different way than the special K backseat boys match, a TV match. Like it was short, it was kind of basic. Um, there was no real reason for it to happen. Again, the poll, it, it felt weird that like just a random, because you fans demanded it poll match. Um, yeah, I, I was not in love with this. I thought this was kind of a little average to maybe a little bit below average for And it's obviously a bit of a different style. But all that being said, my one big caveat on that, which makes me feel guilty for criticizing this match at all, is that the Observer reported that Raven basically collapsed when he went through the curtain after this match from a severe migraine. Now, but he seemed okay later. Now, I've never had a migraine, but I've had serious headaches. I grew up with a mother who had serious migraines. I know how debilitating they can be. The fact that he was able to do any kind of wrestling match with a serious migraine, like, that on I don't on the wrestling match scale, this was average to a little below average. On the doing anything with migraine scales, this was an amazing performance because if the, if he really did have a migraine, like more power to Raven. Yeah, I um this is sort of my reverse of the backseat boys match because I liked it a lot less than you, in Ooh. the sense that I thought it kind of sucked. But like you said, the fact that he had the migraine I think makes it, you know, completely moot. Like, who cares? Like, I'm glad that he was able to survive and not actually collapse and, you know, have any serious medical problems based on doing this with a migraine. It was and a, you couldn't tell by watching it that he was in pain, but apparently a migraine severe enough that he just, like, collapsed. Yeah, yeah, a Herculean effort by him. Um, as far as, like, critiques of the match, Justin Incredible's a guy where who really, you don't know what the hell he's supposed to be in ROH. Because <laughs> he's a total babyface when he's with the Carnage crew, right? And then he's a total heel here, um, like d- doing heel spots. Like he does a baseball slide at Raven, who's like sitting in the corner. Raven moves, and so Credible slides into the post, like crotches himself. You know, total like you know heel, like you know fuck up move. Um, actually, at one point early in the match, the crowd chants Aldo at Justin Credible, <laughs> and I put like, oh, how the mighty have fallen since that huge pop in Massachusetts yeah. a few months ago. Uh, apparently credible did a heel promo before the match that they cut out of the dvd release where he complained about like all the one wrestling sites and stuff you know talking about how raven's doing so good lately so i don't know what that promo maybe that promo was really effective i don't know yeah maybe i guess um i i all i know is they edited it off the dvd so maybe he went i am not aldo montoya and that got the crowd <laughs> to really chant aldo at him um but um I did write, is this really what people came to ROH to see in 2003? And I put maybe. Um, I guess, you know, maybe. They voted on this for a poll. They clearly craved this match. Craved, cravened it. (laughs) I think Uh, think Raven looks a lot better with the short hair than he did with whatever crazy yellow mop that he had before. mm. Um, But, yeah, the highlight of the match was punk on commentary. This is one of those situations that was sort of like, like Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura and like WrestleMania Four, where like the action in the ring sucks, but it's entertaining because the commentary is entertaining. 
you know, so Punk was talking about, you know, Carino and stuff, and Gabe announced that Punk and Carino would wrestle on the next show, and Punk was like, and he was like, what kind of match are we going to see? And Punk was like, you're going to see a professional wrestling match, Gabe Sapolsky. <laughs> and Gabe, um, Gabe plugged um, a match, but like an upcoming, or not, he didn't set plug it, but he kind of teased that there would be a Punk versus Tommy Dreamer match on the horizon. Yeah. That obviously never happened, but it clearly yeah. was something that Gabe wanted. Thank um, God. Yeah. Oh, another... Another ridiculous chant at Credible was Xbox bitch, which is like <laughs> what? Um, I like so just so random. This crowd was crazy. Like at some points they were pretty good actually, but their chants were ridiculous. Um, and maybe that does speak to maybe there were they were a more like mainstream WWE oriented crowd where they're like, oh, we're not like happy to see you back on the indies, Justin. More like, haha, you're not in WWE anymore, and we watch WWE. But it's so weird that they randomly drew this. But yeah, so maybe Raven and Dustin Credible did draw the audience. Um, who the hell knows? But yeah, it was a nothing match. I thought it, I thought it was a crappy match. I don't blame them for it, obviously, but I'm not going to say it was good because it wasn't. Um, Punk at the end of the match like stormed out of the booth after getting annoyed by Gabe's questions. Which, yeah, about who, Lucy or whatever. Who, yeah, who could blame him? Um. Yeah, this was yeah not what. Uh, even though I was a little bit higher than you, I was not into. I just want to make clear, I was not into this match either. It was not a great match. I did kind of like. Maybe this is me being a hypocrite. Near the end of the match, um, there's a ref bump, and uh, Raven gets a visual pinfall on Credible, but doesn't win. And then I think, oh, for a sec, I forgot who won this match, so I thought, oh, great, Credible's going to win. But Raven won anyway. So it was kind of like a good twist in that it made me... But then again, the Backseat Boys and uh, Special K kind of did the same thing. So maybe I'm just a massive hypocrite and a jerk and a bad person. I don't know. Definitely, definitely, if if there's anything that would stop you from getting into the good place, it's having an inconsistent (laughs) opinion on a wrestling match. Also... I did, as a negative against it, like Ring of Honor do, hardly ever did the ref bump at, in this era, and so Raven using it for a meaningless, just incredible Raven match just to get like a good near fall is kind of a seems kind of like a waste, kind of like that that ECW style of I'm not thinking about the whole thing, I'm just thinking about whatever's going to get me a pop right now. Right. And I think Raven's one of the only guys. He's probably had two or three visual pinfall ref bump spots this year. And the rest of the roster combined has probably had like one. So it's, yeah, it's different. That's for sure. Um, next up is the semi-main event. A four-corner survival match. Xavier defeats Homicide with Julius Smokes, John Walters, and Mark Briscoe. In 1646, when he pinned when uh, Xavier pinned Walters after hitting "Kiss Your Ex Goodbye," I don't have a ton to say about this. Everyone, if you've listened long enough, you know I'm not a huge fan of these four ways. I thought it was perfectly fine. It was average as far as far as the standards of these four ways go. It wasn't one of the best ones. I felt like maybe the final few minutes were like a little more special than you get from these four ways. Like the fans. Really got into this match in the final couple of minutes, got loud, particularly after I feel like, uh, after I think it was Xavier did a run of offense to Mark Briscoe, and then the crowd was like, oh, this is where the big stuff happens, like, this is the big moves, and they got real excited for that. Um, overall, though, it was just 17 minutes of guys doing stuff. There was a bit of story at the end where 
Xavier um, went to do a low blow on John Walters, but John Wal- which he had used to beat John Walters in their singles match earlier in the year. But this time, John Walters has it scouted. So Xavier um, just, uh, lo- I think, pokes his eye. Yeah, and then hits kiss your ex goodbye. Uh, I poke. So, yeah, that that's building. That's I mean, it's a little. It's a way to build a little bit of a story of Walters learns something, but Xavier keeps foiling him because he's an asshole that's willing to cheat, and they're building a feud there. But yeah, I, I just the only thing I thought was interesting about that is I love Xavier does the goes for the low blow, and it's like oh, it's a dastardly heel move. Homicide does a low blow too, and he does like low blows in like half of his Ring of Honor matches. But because he's Homicide, like the commentators never be like, "Oh, Homicide's a heel." It's just like, "Oh, yeah." When Homicide does it, that's just Homicide being Homicide. Like he can low blow people all he wants. But you, ne- you needed Punk in there on commentary to point out the hypocrisy. Yeah, exactly. But Matt, did you like this any more than I did, or is it? I mean. Well, so I feel like this show is a record for us disagreeing. I thought this match was like maybe the third best four-corner survival match they've done in 2003. I thought everyone looked really good. The only thing close to a botch was – I guess it was a a botch. There was a move where um, Homicide was like superplexing Mark Briscoe off the top and – and John Walters was going to go like for like a springboard powerbomb simultaneously, and Walters just botched it, and Homicide just hit the suplex, and it ended up being fine. And that was every, everything else looked great. Like, you know, Xavier's chops even seemed brutal. Um, you know, like there was just like, you know, lots of cool moves. You know, cop kill on Briscoe, Walters um, broke it up. Um, Xavier went for a, st- a, st- a 450 while Walters was standing, which I guess was a little bit goofy. So, but so of course he missed that. But you know, the, the dive sequence was really good. Um, you know, like Homicide hit his his dive. Um, Xavier did a springboard Arabian press. The best one was Briscoe's shooting star press. That was awesome. Yeah, um, I liked. Um, you know, I like the stuff between Walters and Xavier. I like that they had a, 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 um, a little bit of a, uh, a rivalry. I also like the stuff between Mark and Walters because they were both like playing the hungry up-and-comers. Um, and they had a few different moments where things broke down and everyone hit spots. And it w- this match was, I feel like, shorter than some of the other four-corner survivals, so it was a lot more action-packed. I thought the last few minutes were awesome. I thought Homicide looked good, but he didn't like dominate the action in the match. I thought... Walters actually looked really good. I think he's like better in these multi-person matches where he just gets to hit a few of his big moves, like the Hurricane DDT and a top rope Hurricane DDT. With that move, always looks really good. Um, I liked when Walters belly to belly suplexed Homicide into the corner. It was just it was a big match with big moves, but also you had a little bit of the storyline with Walters and Xavier to kind of tie it together. And these matches are meant to just be fun. And I thought this match was really fun, but also really hard-hitting, and everyone was working really hard. Um, yeah, I would say probably the third best of the four corner matches that they've done so far. And I, um, and I don't know. I just I thought it was very good. I really, really enjoyed it. Here, here's the weird thing. Like, if I went, I w- I'm not going to do this, but if I went back and looked at my opinions of all the four corner matches they've done in 2003, I'm not counting the the championship one they did in 2002, but. I might agree with you that this is the third best, but I, I think that the gulf between this one and then the top two is huge. Like, I feel like that one at Death Before Dishonor and maybe, like, the first one that really got things going in 2003, like, I feel like those matches are probably... Uh, 
I felt like this one was not bad. I just felt like it was in the pack and maybe a tiny bit ahead of the pack or in the pack. I, I, I don't felt there's just, it's not that it did anything wrong. It's like nothing grabbed me as like, Oh, this is, at a, this is, this is a lot more exciting than what we typically see. Yeah. I, so, I, I mean, I, I mean, these matches are not for everyone. I did think it was more exciting. I would probably say the gulf between one and two is pretty high. Death before dishonor and revenge on the prophecy. But the gulf between two and three is not that high for me. And I could even see myself, like, I'd have to watch that one again. I could even see myself saying this one's better than that mm-hmm. one. But I, I just, I just, I like that you had the up and comers and also the veterans and Homicide, you know, added the star power. And Mark Briscoe has just been, you know, killer in everything he's done lately. Yeah. And, you know, Xavier looked better than usual. And Walters, you know, I thought this was a good, a good spot for him. So I was, I was very pleased with it couple other notes. One spot that was kind of ridiculous, and I've seen this a few times in wrestling, where Walters has Briscoe and Xavier in simultaneous submissions. And Walters loves doing that, getting two guys in submissions at once. And so Homicide comes in, and he runs the ropes back and forth for like an hour before he hits a drop kick to break it up. And like, you know, that's kind of a crowd-pleasing, goofy spot, and the fans like it. But I would love to see that spot in one of these matches where the guys running the ropes forever. And then after like 20 seconds of running the ropes, one of the guys just submits before he can do the drop kick to break it up. Like I would love if that like came back to bite someone in the ass. I think that would be hilarious. Like just keep running the ropes and the guy taps out. He's like, shit. Yeah. I, um, um I don't think that ever happens probably. No, <laughs> no uh, somebody like, so I know we got people in wrestling, like book that match for me, please. I'll, you'll get, you'll sell one, one VOD right here. <laughs> um, let me just see. Uh, Gabe actually called the cop killer the kudo driver and for once didn't say, oh, I can't call it the cop killer. He just said the kudo driver. So Gabe on his best behavior today. <laughs> um, he got a talking to from that parole officer. Gabe continues to call Walter's blue chip and can't miss. Even on the website, going back to like the, the archived website, Pretty much every time they reference John Walters, they have to say he's blue, a blue chip prospect to the point where it's basically his nickname. And I wonder if that, like, kind of dragged him down. I, I wonder if just the fact that they kept hammering that home because they really sold no one else in Ring of Honor as a blue chip can't miss prospect. Yeah, and Walters. And I was going to say, Walters is good, but I don't think he's, like, the standout of the young up and comers on the roster. So it is interesting that yeah. he's getting that treatment. Uh, part, so part of me wonders if maybe they oversold him and actually hurt his career in Ring of Honor because of that. Because, you know, if you, if he's just a guy in the pack, you go, yeah, he's not bad. But when you just keep saying over and over again, he's can't miss, he's a blue chipper, he's a future star. Now you've, risen, you've raised the bar so high. And as you just said, there's other good guys coming up. So yeah. it, it kind of makes it look like, what what are you talking about, you know? And then finally, on a little funny comedy note, after Punk being on and off commentary so much and Joe popping in, we're back to Gabe and Doug. And at one point when they're putting over over Mark Briscoe, Doug says, there's a glass ceiling for Mark Briscoe, but there's a good thing. And then Gabe has to correct him like, no, you mean he's going to break through the glass ceiling. But Doug was really like, yeah, Mark's going to do great. There's a glass ceiling for Mark Briscoe. I was like, no. Maybe he meant he's going to make so much money he'll be able to afford all glass ceilings in his house. I don't know, but yeah, that's also not good. Be very hot. <laughs> yeah. um, Summer. Next, we get a Jim Cornette promo 
hyping his return to Ring of Honor at the next New Jersey show. He says he's going to be, quote, in the middle of the corner, unquote, of Samoa Joe. So he's going to stand very precisely, apparently. <laughs> and uh, Cornet does a few rhymes and then says Joe is going to do some of his biddings, which... Mm. Yeah, this, uh, I don't... I don't... I mean, obviously, there'll be plenty of Cornet to talk about over through the years in, yeah. our, in ROH, but he never really seemed like a good fit, to be honest. Uh, it seemed forced. I, you hit the nail on the head. Like, this one... Like there's sometimes where he kind of fit in a little bit. This one, he really felt like he like like he felt like a guy trying to talk about something he really didn't completely understand. Right, exactly. Um, so also, his most of his ROH promos, like that he does on these shows, teasers, like they're they're all kind of the same. Yeah, and, and they they're the same kind of promos he would. It feels like he would cut in 1993 or 2003. Right. Like about any promotion, like you could, he could do twenty of these. It actually makes ROH seem a little bit low rent because it's just like, oh, like the the star is coming in to pop in for the indie, like instead of actually being a part of the tone of what they're actually going for. You know what I mean? Like he's just like it's just something that he's gonna pop. He's like basically treating it like a generic indie. And also, he's talking like he's doing the very old school thing where he's like, "I'm coming because I smell money." I, I he keeps talking about how he smells money and a chance to make money, like. I feel like most fans realize the economics of indie wrestling. Yeah, and it just it just seems forced. Like yes, if you're looking, if you smell money, maybe you should get your your nose checked because yeah. it, it's not Ring of Honor is not the place where you're going to get rich. Yeah, obviously, obviously, his upper lip smells a lot like money. <laughs> and that brings us to the main event: Ring of Honor World Title Match. Samoa Joe successfully defends his t- title. Defeating Jay Briscoe in 15 minutes, 6 seconds after he hits a lariat. Um, Matt, the Observer, wrote on this match, The idea with this match was to get Jay Briscoe over stronger as a real contender, and it worked so well that now the plan is to try to elevate both brothers to the main events. Did you think this match worked that well? Yes. Uh, Unequivocally. I I feel like this was a very basic, like, style of match like in, in terms of like okay so you had the smaller plucky underdog you have the big bully champion and they're gonna the, the, the champion's gonna dominate the underdog's gonna get some hope spots he's going to he's gonna survive some things you don't expect him to survive and in the end he's going down and that's exactly what they did but it works so well in part because of obviously the talent of the performers involved but also because the crowd was just so willing to buy it. And I feel like maybe in front of another crowd, this wouldn't have been as good, but it was in front of this crowd. So this is, this is the crowd redeeming themselves for me, um, I would say, a lot. Um, but also the execution was great. You know, there's nothing surprising about what they did here. There's no, like, little, like, nuance, I don't think. Maybe you picked up on some stuff that really, like, was, would break out of that storyline that I just described. But, you know, the, the moves they did, the execution, the timing was great. So you start out, you know, Mark appears in Jay's corner. Mark is clutching his neck, but he's there for moral support. Um, and Joe is, like, working him over. He's doing, like, little kicks to, to taunt him. Then he's doing big kicks to wear him out. He starts working on Jay's back. He hits a backbreaker. He hits a, a deep Boston Crab. Very nonchalant. But then Jay comes back with, like, a Yakuza kick or, like, two Yakuza kicks and a plancha from the top turnbuckle. So, like, every time Jay did a comeback, it was an intense comeback. It wasn't just, like, I'm going to do an Irish whip, you know? Like, he was he was doing intense stuff, and it looked Real really urgency. good. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was one point, like, where, where, where Jay is actually 
like beating on Joe outside the ring, like whipping him into guardrail, into guardrail. Joe actually slips at one point, getting whipped into the guardrail, but he able, he's able to recover and just kind of like slide into it, and he's okay. It doesn't look that embarrassing. But um, you know, crowd really gets into Jay as he's doing that. Joe comes back. He does the Olay kicks, and this time he actually is Olay Olay kicks, or he does two in a row uninterrupted. Because in the past few shows, I feel like his flow has been interrupted a little bit, and Joe goes back to you know being arrogant. Um, and you know, you can tell like Joe is sort of like playing heelish a little bit here, not full cheating or anything, but just you know the arrogance of everything. Yeah. Um, Joe. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, Joe has Jay in like an STF, and Jay is like slamming the mat in pain, like almost looks like he's tapping out. And right as he's doing that, Gabe goes, he's refusing to tap. <laughs> he literally taps twice, like <laughs> two times, and Gabe says he's refusing to tap. <laughs> yeah, it was very funny. Um, it's fu- I also, another thing that was funny, at the beginning of the match, Gabe said... Um, if Jay hits the J-Driller, he'll be the champion. And I'm like, oh, just embarrass me more with my wrong prediction about the J-Driller. <laughs> Fine, thanks. Um, but, you know, Joe comes back. I mean, so um, Jay starts to come back after the Joe's rolling cradle with a big backdrop driver. So I love that urgency. He hits a falcon arrow for two, which I thought was really impressive, just because, you know, Joe's a big guy. Um, and Jay, Jay powers Joe into a Death Valley driver, and the crowd loves this. Like The crowd's just like, wow, this is impressive. And it is. Um, they're really into it. Um, Joe goes for the choke, and Jay actually bites his thumb to escape it. And um, so Joe just like goes crazy, hits a dragon suplex, and slaps and kicks Jay and hits an island driver. And Jay kicks out, and I actually was shocked that Jay kicked out of that. I thought that was a great spot and a great use of a near fall. Because, you know, sometimes these near falls are gratuitous. That one added so much to the match, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And then, then Joe hits the big lariat for three. And the crowd actually boos Joe winning. You know, Joe really positioned himself early as like the babyface standard bearer for the company. And he turns himself full heel to this crowd because they get so into Jay Briscoe. So, yes, it worked on every level in getting Jay over as a top guy. This this was my match of the night. I liked it a bit better than the AJ Punk match. I thought, again, I wouldn't put it at that, like, you have to go see it, but maybe right at the level below that. Really good match. Very, very good. And... uh I think this is a great match for people like some people complain about modern wrestling, especially modern indie wrestling, that it's too much your move, my move, your move, my move back and forth, back and forth. I like those matches, but I like everything in moderation. I do feel like maybe too much of wrestling is like that. If you don't like that style, this is a great match for you to watch because it's like the first third of it. Jay Briscoe might get zero offense other than maybe a tiny bit of mat wrestling at the very beginning. And then, as Matt said, when he makes his comebacks, they feel like real shifts, and he gets like huge urgency, like almost frantic to try and take out Joe. And then he'll be on offense for a while, and then a big move will happen, and then Joe will be back in control for a while. So it's not it's the exact opposite of like every move is back and forth. It it's it's like Joe's dominating and Jay's getting these comebacks. And then Joe's getting the control again. And then at the end, it's a little bit more move your move, my move, but not really. It all feels pretty earned to me. And yeah, it, it's just it, Joe. These are this is one of those early Joe matches that starts to feel more like I remember Joe matches feeling like like a little bit different. I feel like something this match and the AJ Punk match both had that some indie wrestling d- d- doesn't have is as the match goes on. 
it doesn't speed up. It actually slows down a little bit to its like benefit. Like the, they they let the moves breathe a little more at the end. And yeah, it's I, it's called selling, and they do a really good job of it. Yeah, like they, yeah. Go oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you, no, you go on. Well, just like they, like the like the the weight of the match bears down on them. And yeah, I, that's how it. That to me, that's that was the type of selling they were doing, and it wasn't in that obnoxious like Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Hell in a Cell kind of way. It was in a like more believable way that fits in pace with the rest of the match. I feel like, and again, I like modern wrestling, but I feel like a lot of wrestling now has gone in the direction of a match speeds up as it goes on and gets more and more exciting and fast paced, and then it just ends in this flurry of back and forth action. Where I feel like matches like this, the idea is. As the match continues, it gets a little bit slower because they're getting more tired and also because you should every move should be more important because as we get deep into the match, any move could be the finish. So every move should have like a spotlight on it. Like, oh shit, hit the island driver. Well now what's he gonna do if he can't win with that? You know? It shouldn't just be you know, it, it should it should have that give you time to think about the moves. Yeah, I think our wrestlers have talked about that's one of the reasons why you have selling is you want fans to think about what just happened. You don't you don't you want to actually give them time to think. And again, there's more than one way to do a match. Sometimes you don't want fans to think. Sometimes you just want to stun them with like a flurry of spectacle. But and I, I thought the end was my favorite part uh, of um, the match. And one of my favorite things in Ring of Honor wrestling this year because what I loved about that that thing you talked about, the Island Driver kickout, is Gabe sells on commentary as, oh, you know, no one's kicked out of the Island Driver. Now, I don't know if that's true. My memory for that kind of stuff is bad. But I like that he sold it that way. And what I really liked is that Jay kicks out of the Island Driver, but Joe beats him, like, shortly after that with, like, the Lariat. And Jay never gets more offense. It's it's it puts over Jay because Jay beat, kicks out this move that no one survives, but at the same time, the move still is really put over as well because it's like okay, the move didn't beat Jay, but it all but beat him. Like there was no coming back from that. Like he was struggling to survive and he barely survived, but he still was so out of it he was never going to win after that. And I like that. I think that I like those kinds of finishes where there's real drama like that, where you know the guy is probably dead in the water, but he's still in the match. But you know he's probably not going to win. Right. Like it's just how's he going to get put down here? Right. And, and also, Joe sold the kick out. Like he like he did that stunned look on his face, like the Undertaker against Shawn Michaels that time. Like he was just like, how on earth? And everyone was reacting the same way, which is great. Yeah, like, people should look at this match. If you want to look at when people talk about, oh, a guy got more over in losing, I think a lot of people just assume, oh, that means they just had a back-and-forth match, and it was a good match. And, yeah, sometimes that gets people over in losing, but there are little specific things you can do in a match, like that near fall and that reaction Joe had that can get a guy over in losing, where it's like a purposeful thing. I'm going to give this guy this this thing, you know, right. this little moment. And that will put that will elevate him, and uh, yeah, this was really good match. I also felt like one thing that kind of sur- surprises me, but shouldn't watching Jay Briscoe from this era is when you'd watch Jay Briscoe today. He's so charismatic and just this big, hairy, woolly bearded, like super aggressive, scary, charismatic hillbilly. 
it's hard for me to imagine Jay Briscoe as like the sympathetic baby face, super young looking underdog, but he was so good at it. I think he was one of Joe's best per opponents in this era in terms of just making Joe look like an absolute monster. Th that point where he's in the STF or the Boston, I think the Boston crab and he's screaming and gets to the ropes. He's screaming so hard being in that move when he gets into the ropes, like the crowd reacts like it, it's like a big deal that he survived a Boston crowd early in the match too. Yeah. Like he, he did such a good job selling it. He like got a reaction that I think 90% of wrestlers or more wouldn't have gotten in that same position. He just milked that move so perfectly. Yeah. And again, yeah, the urgency of his comebacks where it felt like he was like, shit, this is my one shot. Like when, that first comeback he makes where he hits the couple Yakuza kicks and then he does the dive from the top to the floor. His dive was really kind of awkward. He basically just jumped off the top and fell feet first straight down onto Joe with his arms out. But for me, that kind of worked because it was like he's so desperate. He's like doing flying moves and he's not even comfortable doing them. He's just like, shit, I, I, I got to do something now. Uh, jump off this high thing. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll figure it out. And one other thing I noticed too is this match continues. Joe has won so many matches this year in so many different ways. He's won this year in Ring of Honor with the Muscle Buster, with the Rear Naked Choke, with an Arms Captured German Suplex, with a Dragon Suplex, and now he's won with a Lariat. And he's won with the Island Driver. Like, he's had so many different finishes this year. Yeah, it's, it'll, it'll be interesting. That's another thing to keep an eye on. Like, when does he finally settle into, like, the Choke and... The Muscle Buster, and those are his finishers. Yeah, um, I don't know. And, and Gabe, we also got like the best and worst of Gabe commentary here because when he at one point he goes, uh, I think a Jay Briscoe hits the Jay Driller here. Like you, you mentioned it. Like Jay's definitely winning the Ring of Honor title, and I thought, oh boy, like. Like, this is going to be the first one that Matt used to talk about, like, Jay, someone's going to kick out of the J-Driller, but he never gets the J-Driller. So Gabe actually alluded to something for once that did not happen, and he, in fact, he, he turns into a double-arm DDT instead when he can't get it, which I thought was a cool spot. But then later you get the worst of Gabe because he says, you have to wonder how long before a Briscoe holds a championship here in Ring of Honor, and I'll just give you guys the answer. It's two shows. Yep. So that, that's it's the opposite of the so you got the good Gabe and you get the bad Gabe here the the two faces of Gabe that classic WWE compilation. <laughs> uh, so that, yeah. no, that's going to be the name of our special episode when we finally get Gabe on the show. <laughs> yeah. We'll both we'll talk to him and we'll play good cop bad cop. So, that's right. Uh, immediately after the match, Joe flips off the crowd. Some boo, some applaud, some chant "Ring of Honor." Joe is super cocky after the match he was during, as Matt mentioned too, but he shakes a nearly unconscious Jay's hand and he's laughing. Mark gets in the ring to defend his brother, and Joe doesn't look like he'll retaliate, but but he turns out he's just waiting until Mark turns his back, and then he hits an insiguri and chokes Mark out. Crowd chants, fuck you, Joe, as Gabe says he thinks Joe is frustrated by the Briscoes and that we haven't seen the last between Joe and the Briscoes. It's very interesting that they're like, while they're making Joe their big baby face, they're also making him more of a heel. Yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of, in a way, weird. Like, I don't know how much of that was purposeful. Like, I don't know how much of a plan they had for the Joe character. Um, I know when I watched uh, the Joe shoot interview to kind of prepare for this, he really liked this match, and he talked about... Um, 
he felt like at first, like in the opening of the match or maybe the, the opening segment, that Jay wasn't as over as they thought he was going to be, being like kind of what they thought was from the area, Delaware, not quite Maryland. But he said he was really proud of the fact, he said, you might think this is weird, but I was really proud that by the end of the night, I had fans saying, I ho- like fucking die, Joe, like I hope you die. Like he says, that made me feel really good. He says, as weird as that to say. So... I think Joe sees this as a match where he really like turned the crowd and like he views that he views that as a really good accomplishment in his career. I agree with that. Both of those things. Yeah, and definitely like there there's a moment in this match where hmm. at the start of the match, like the people are chanting for Joe. Once he gets that rear naked choke while he tries to get it on Jay, the crowd boos. Like in the course of the match, they've turned it from like we like Joe to fuck. We don't want you to win. And yeah. They, yeah, I mean, they they did a great job. They really did. Yeah. And next we get a uh, backstage promo at some show. I don't know where because it wasn't this show because it's Christopher Daniels who didn't work tonight. Uh, Daniels admits that at Glory by Honor 2, Joe was the better man. But there'll be more shots coming down the line. Uh, Joe, I mean, Daniels continues to say that the title is his destiny, and I just wrote, boy, that's a long destiny considering how long it took him to finally win the Ring of Honor world title. Uh, Daniels moves on to Steve Carino, saying that Steve wishing him luck at the last show was a curveball for him. Daniels tells the story of the snake nursed back to health by a man, only for the snake to bite and kill the man, telling the man, you know, I'm a snake, what'd you expect? Very similar to the story Punk would tell a couple years later in Ring of Honor. He would tell that one better, though. But yes, yes, definitely. Um... Speaking of punk, Daniels again denies that he attacked Lucy, who he calls a painted-up floozy, which is like a very old man, <laughs> to me, style put down. You painted-up floozy. He might as well just called her a harlot or something. Uh, Daniels says the next time he's face-to-face with punk, he won't laugh it off. Daniels congratulates Moff and Xavier on their wins tonight, and he congratulates Ring of Honor on opening up a new market. But he takes credit for that, and he says... Shows he isn't on are a little less big and a little less exciting. I, yeah, I mean, we can get into whether or not that's true, but um, <laughs> the whole thing they're doing with Xavier, with is he in the prophecy, is he not, pretty half-assed. Because, like, Xavier never acknowledges it at all. And, no. and like, you know, they have Alice in Danger come out, you know, at the last show, and, you know, Daniel still mentioned him, but it's like, and they, obviously they had that match a few months uh, earlier, but... It's like, are you going to do something with this or aren't you? <laughs> like, and I don't know if they actually ever really do. Yeah, this, this kind of reminds me of the Field of Honor buildup where the announcers were kept going, you know, what's the Field of Honor? We've we got to figure it out. Who, what is it? Who's in it? And this, every time Xavier comes out now, they're like, oh, Allison Danger isn't in with him. Is, is, is he out of the prophecy? Oh, but he cheated. That must mean he's still in the prophecy. And you just, as a fan, are left going, why don't you just ask somebody? Yeah. <laughs> like, why don't you just ask Xavier? He does a promo tonight. <laughs> Like, someone ask him, maybe he'll answer. It's just weird. But uh, backstage, we go to a John Walters promo. He Hmm. says he requested this promo time. I'm going to say that was a bad request. He cuts a not very good promo about Xavier cheating cheating him yet again to cost him a second match. Walters says he was driven to compete at an early age, and his dad taught him there were only two options in life, winning and winning. Sounds like he had a real shitty dad, uh, I wrote. Uh, <laughs> Walters says to, Walter says about Xavier that Xavier pissed on the rules or Ring of Honor or something by cheating, and then Walters says the immortal words, you piss on me, I piss on you, Xavier. And 
just great stuff from John Walters. So, um, I'm pretty sure that Walters is a Trump fan. So I guess like no, I'm pretty like I'm serious. So so I think that um, you know obviously the the pissing might be part of it. I don't know. Um, I'm just speculating there, but um, <laughs> um, but yeah. So like obviously like Walters wasn't a good promo, but like Walters is learning and his his promos are um, you know you know he has needs to he needs to practice for them to be good. So it's good that they give him time, but. Then at the same time, it's like what the material they're giving him is is not good at all because, A, he's whining, right? He's like, oh, you yeah. dis- disrespected everything. And he's like, I'm not bitching. I'm not crying. It's like, well, yes, yes, you are. But yeah. also, it, he doesn't come off like a baby face at all. Like he's like winning and win. Like that's not something a baby face would say. He's like, you disrespected me, blah, 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 blah. Like, and I know that like John Walters eventually finds his niche on the mic as, a, as an aggressive racist. I get that. <laughs> But that's but that's years away. Listen, am I saying anything that's controversial no, here? No, no, you're not. Um, I also thought it was yeah. He didn't come off likable here because not only is he too serious and not and too whiny, but at one point he goes something about like you know, Dad taught me there's only two options: winning and winning. And then even either moments before or after he says that in the promo, he says something like, "If you hadn't cheated, I would have accepted your your my loss as a learning experience." And I I was like, I thought you just said. There's only two options, winning and winning, but you then say you would have accepted a loss. Like, it, Here's the other so, thing. Here's the other thing. He keeps calling him Xavier, and I'm like, didn't anybody bother to correct him? It's like, no, 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 it's actually Xavier. And like, like you know, and the first time he says it, like very early in the promo, Gabe could have been like, all right, let's do that over. It's, it's Xavier, just so you know. But they just let him say Xavier, Xavier, Xavier over and over again. And I feel like that's not a good look for him. But after the Dr. Keith show last time, I do feel like you, – you kind of already said it, but I do have to have a bit more sympathy of, yes, guys need promo time because how are they going to get better? Although I also do think promos are something you could probably practice in your bathroom to the mirror. Sure. Like, it's like people say with wrestling – no matter how many drills you do, there's no substitute for actually wrestling matches. I feel like there is a substitute for cutting a backstage promo. It's called talking to your to your comb. You know, like I suppose so. I I can still forgive it, but yeah. like the material, you can't forgive because he could have he could have been coached on this, and he was given bad material to work with. Something about Ring of Honor promos is it never feels like there was ever a take two. Like yes. there's been flubs. We see it always feels like whatever it was, no one ever said. Let's redo that again. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but it never feels like anyone said, you know what, how about we try it this way this time? Like, it always feels like whatever they say, cut, okay, that's going on the DVD. <laughs> like, just, yep. okay. That's definitely um, true. <laughs> I know they probably were limited for time backstage, but uh, anyway, the camera does one of those tr- seamless transitions, wink, wink, where <laughs> Gabe goes, that's a wrap on the promo, and then the camera turns and five feet away, something else is happening. In this case... Johnny Cashmere is leaving the building. Trent Acid stops him. He wants to know what's up. Cashmere says he just needs time. Acid is perplexed. So, continuing to hint at a breakup angle that I don't think happens. Right. Um, it's weird. It's just weird. Like they're like they're, this is very intense stuff that they're going through that really doesn't amount to anything. Yeah, I, I'm still wondering if maybe Gabe wanted to split them up, and then maybe they said, oh, we don't want to do that. That's the only thing that makes sense here, because they they definitely w- took a, a sharp right turn on this show. But right. 
Next, we get an Xavier promo. Xavier mocks Walter, saying he's beaten him twice now and a win's a win. Xavier says he's going to win the Field of Honor. But if Walters wants another match, how about a tag match of the purists, which is Tony Mameluke and Walters, versus Xavier and a partner of his choice? This promo reminded me that the purists still existed for one more match, at least. That's yeah, about it. or they they yeah thought they wanted it to at the very least. Yeah, and then fi- finally we end with a very short Briscoe's promo. Mark and Jay recovering. Jay says Joe won the battle tonight, but the war has just begun. I like this. I thought this was like perfect length of what they had to do, and the delivery was fine. Yeah, it was like thirty seconds, just letting you know like this isn't over, and. Yes. That was the show. So, Matt, this was the debut in a new market. What kind of a? I felt this was a weird up and down show. I thought there were highs and lows to this. What What did you think? I think this is how you do a B show, like in the sense of this was definitely a B show, and that there were no marquee matches, there were no big storyline blowoffs. There was, but there was a, some small angle advancement in the you know there was a tag title change. There were some very good matches with the like the stars they had in terms of AJ and. And uh, and Punk, I liked the four corner match um, personally, and the main event was really good. But you know, so the so the matches that they needed to that needed to be good were good. Not everything was great, and there was definitely like some lesser stuff on there. But I think in the ring, this was better than the last A show they had, which was Glory by Honor two. I think this was definitely a better wrestling show overall than that was. You know, the main event maybe on that one was a little bit better, but not that much better. And there was more good matches on this, I'd say, easily. Um, even if it was less, quote, important and the atmosphere was less, like, intense. Um, but what it also, I thought about was, this is kind of, in some ways, a rebuilding period for ROH. Like, not in terms of, like, a lot of new guys coming in and getting major spots, but if you think about it, like, what are the ongoing storylines in ROH right now? There aren't that many. You know, there's Punk trying to figure out what's going on with Lucy. There is, um, you know, I guess there's an issue building with uh, Moff and Homicide and Loki, although, you know, Loki's gone for a while, you know, even in best case scenario. Um, But like, you know, the Joe and Daniels thing is sort of on on ice for a little while. So now they're building into new feuds, you know, like mid-card stuff like Xavier and... um, and Walters. John Walters, and then there's the, you know, the Backseat Boys, what's going to happen with them, and they just began, a, like, one of, honestly, kind of Samoa Joe's first real personal issue in the entire time he's been in ROH, which is with the Briscoes. Like, that's a, this is, like, this is a brand new feud. Like, this debuted basically tonight from this match. So this is, like, almost the beginning of a new chapter in ROH. So even though it's a B-show, it's... It's significant, you know what I mean? And um, I thought it was good. Like I, I, like you did say, it was up and down, um, but it had genuine good stuff. And it was, and the main event, you know, really delivered. And I feel like it's, you know, it's setting into action some good stuff going forward. I, um, I guess, as you mentioned earlier, that this was a show we probably disagreed the most on some matches. I guess it makes sense that we probably disagree a fair bit on the on what we think of the show as a whole. I was kind of I enjoyed watching the show, but I was kind of down on it because I uh, I, I thought there was two very good matches, but neither neither of them were quite good enough to be like you have to go all of your way to see it. But there was two very good matches: AJ and Punk, Joe and Jay. But you know, I thought there was a lot of stuff on this show that was either average or not good, like. The the striker match that's full of botches, the the rave match that was basically a squash, the raven match that was you know 
nothing, you know, maybe because of the migraine. I didn't like the tag title match. And, you know, stuff like BJ, Colt, and the four-way were average, but and the scramble was average. But I thought there was a lot of average, two very good matches, and then a lot of stuff that kind of didn't work. And usually Ring of Honor, even on their shows that, I'm not, that we're more in the middle on, it was more just, oh, there's a lot of average and a little bit of really good. This show, I felt like a bunch of average, a couple really good things, and then more than usual of things that just kind of either felt completely inconsequential or not, or like below average as wrestling, which I think is rare for Ring of Honor at this point. And, but I do think you make a great point about where Ring of Honor is at this point because they are in transition and they're almost going to be transitioning from this point too because going to what you said like the raven punk feud has one more match left it's basically over and then they got stuff like the backseat boys thing which isn't going to happen the low-key feuds with homicide and moth that aren't going to happen the field of honor they're still in the middle of that and that's not going to turn out great it's like there's a lot of even um the punk daniels feud is you know, not going to get a resolution. It's kind of amazing to see, like, knowing how good Ring of Honor is going forward, how many things that are kind of going on right now that aren't going to go the way they plan, that they're going to have to roll with. Like, a lot of stuff. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, like, in each individual case, how it's dealt with. Yeah, and, but yet, like, I know the shows coming up are going to be good, really good, probably. Like, I'm based on my memories and the lineups, like, so... It's interesting to see that, you know, they were a resilient company in that sense, where if things didn't go, if things like a Field of Honor tournament didn't turn out great, you know, they, that wasn't going to sink the company or even sink an individual show. Will you, at yeah. least, will you at least admit that this was a lot better than the Dayton debut? Yes, because there is, the AJ Punk and the Joe J matches are far more memorable than anything on the Dayton debut. Yeah. I, I will remember these matches more than I'll remember anything in Dayton. So definitely it's better in that sense. No, absolutely. And again, I think it's it, it's it's a hard show because, again, it's up and down. Like, there there are pretty high highs on this show, but there are also some, I think, some fairly low lows by Ring of Honor standards. There was but, nothing, there was nothing terrible, though. I mean, the closest thing to terrible, to, in my opinion, was actually a match you kind of liked, the, or liked, liked more than me, which was the Raven and Credible match. But I don't think there was anything, like, embarrassingly bad. And we should reiterate, there was no man-on-woman violence, which is a big yeah. deal. And, and and I feel like the show should get a lot of – unfortunately, yeah. I mean, it's grading on a curve because, like, we shouldn't give something credit for just basic human decency. But I feel like some credit for the end of that streak. It actually makes me wonder now, do they just pick right back up where they left, left off with a new streak okay. starting on the next show? If there's man-on-violence on the next show, I am going to be pissed. Because if you break the streak for nothing – who boy, like, if you break the streak because you tried, got a little bit of religion, so to speak, and, and, like, realize the error of your ways and don't do this for a few shows, good on you. If you break the streak and then the very next show you're like, oh, back at it, oh, oh, oh man. There is no way that this was intentional. Like, you could, you, come on, man. Like, they didn't even think about that for a second. Yeah, they did not, they just didn't have enough women on the show. Like, Alexis Lurie le- just left, Lollipop wasn't here tonight. Like, there was only one, I guess two women that they could have even done something with. There was... Alice in Danger during one match with Dan Moff, which barely lasted any amount of time, and with Becky Bayless. That's it. They yep. could have done a Becky Bayless spot. I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't. They did. They did. Was, they did still say mean things about her on commentary. Yeah, 
But they could have very easily, because there was so much special K interference, done a Becky Bayless like attack. So, well, yeah, well, credit to them, they didn't do that. Yeah, credit to them, they didn't do the worst thing they always do. But I, <laughs> I guess one thing I want to say, the way you were saying, like, um, I agree that there was nothing like horrible on this sh- on this show in terms of matches, but at the same or, time, or, or booking, yeah. But when but when we think about it. I'm kind of. I guess what I'm doing is I'm not comparing it to all wrestling right now. I'm comparing it to other Ring of Honor shows, and like nothing was a terrible match. But most Ring of Honor shows usually have like bottom out at average, hmm. and I feel like when you look by that comparison, when's the last time on a Ring of Honor show that we've been watching have you seen a match as not good as Raven Just Incredible, or when's the last time you've seen a match that wasn't like a spot fest with as many botches as Saban Matt Striker like. It's not that they were horrible. It's just I feel like their their lows for like 2003 Ring of Honor at certain points. There was nothing to me. Yes, you're right. Although there was nothing to me that I disliked or found as dull as the four corner survival match from Wrath of the Racket with Michael yeah. Shane and Hernandez and and Slick Wagner Brown. Like that, I think was like a pretty low in the ring. And because nothing, I guess because nothing was long enough to be that dull. But yes, you make a good point. I think what we've learned from this discussion is less about this show and more that if our end of year awards had a worst of the year rule award for shows, oh, it we would put we would we would put Wrath at the Racket. Spoiler because, alert, we're gonna have that and it's gonna happen. Okay. <laughs> so and with that that we come to the end of another episode. If you guys want to get in contact with us through the years at gmail.com, that's T H R O H for through. Um at Trevor Dame on Twitter or at Mayor MGF. We're on the all sorts of message boards, pro wrestling only, voices of wrestling, figure four board. And next time we will be covering Empire State Showdown. Ring of Honor returns to New York for the last time for quite a while. We're getting Homicide versus Samoa Joe, the big rematch from Do or Die. This time it's no DQ. And in addition, we're getting the famous, maybe infamous, CM Punk-Steve Carino match where the pre-match mic work is nearly as long as the match. And it's a pretty long match. I am looking forward to that. Me too. Thanks again, Matt. This was another great show. And everyone, just uh, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it.